I feel like you're on a roll. Oh, thank you. But you had a really good video the other day. I don't have it in the notes yet, but I, <laughs> but I will. Uh, on this uh, analytics situation yeah. in the App Store. We're just jumping right in. No small talk today. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But this analytics situation in, in the App Store and, and with these apps being discovered, it, it's it's like everything with Facebook. It's an un unrolling scandal like like it's not like (laughs) never ending never ending it's it's we learn one thing after another um but basically the wall street journal had a story last week that really escalated this where they did some research on a bunch of uh apps that take by 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 nature of the app yeah they take very personal information these are things like um menstrual cycle calendar trackers for women um uh, uh, what are some of the other examples the real estate apps real estate apps what houses you wanted to buy yeah there's a range of them and yeah so it's like you you know um financial information and stuff like that and they 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 got security experts and they they, i guess hook these things up to like a something to look at the network traffic coming yeah. in and out of the phones and these apps all like you as soon as you'd enter this information you put your weight in and as soon as you do it, it goes right to facebook <laughs> yeah <laughs> and my favorite part is right after the article will Strafik, you know at chronic on twitter who's just absolutely fantastic on information security he got involved and started decompiling a bunch of other ones and finding like some of them were sending google how often you had sex whether it was protected right. or not whether you were trying to conceive or not Right, which people are entering into these apps voluntarily because they're doing they're they're doing it for purposes of uh you know like the the period trackers you know whether yeah. it's it, it you know even if even women who aren't trying to get pregnant might be tracking their period for for health related purposes. It, it didn't a, even wait. It didn't even roll. Right. Out. It, it, the second you put the information in, it was sent to Facebook or Google or Flurry or a company like that. Yeah, it's really strange, and you know, and there have been stories for a while about other other such things where. Um, retailers have been tracking people in the real world yeah and, and target can figure out or to name one example that that if you buy a, a x y and z it, there's a 85 percent chance that you have you're just found out you're pregnant you know yeah you know and some of it's obvious duh it's like you know prenatal vitamins or something like that um but then you know but just other things there's just weird connections where you know uh you know skin lotion or something like that you know but they can make these connections and then start sending you if you know you're on their mailing list, start sending you um, spam, you know, mailing you spam for baby stuff. Just weird, yeah. you know. And, and a lot of times the companies like they'll always say, "Oh, it's anonymized." But anonym, unless you're doing sort of like what Apple does with unique tokens that expire immediately and different, unless you're going that extra mile, anonymizing data doesn't do anything. It has been proven trivial for these companies to get even just one single data point to tie you into these profiles or shadow profiles if you don't use their services, and then they know exactly who that data is coming from. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right, right. So, yeah, the the claims that this is anonymous, that they're just sending, oh, yeah, it's just a person who's telling us exactly, you know, how much they weigh yeah. and what they've eaten today. You know, it, it doesn't hold much water to say that it's anonymized because they can connect this in other ways. Yeah, absolutely. And so, anyway, you had a video about this on your channel, and I thought one of the really interesting segments of it was you pulled up an old... Well, obviously old at this point, but like I think it was from 2011, yeah. a Steve Jobs at the All Things D conference talking about 
a scandal at the time that I had since forgotten uh, the flurry analytics thing. Can you, can you describe that? Yeah. So what happened was this article came out saying that Apple was working on new iPhones, of course, and on tablet devices. And it was based on developers using Flurry Analytics and people inside Apple using those apps and the information on devices being reported. But what's delightful on stage is like you get uh, Jobs is asked about it and he just starts saying, like, we learned about this and we we were pissed off. You know, they were still and he's just so angry that Apple immediately changed the App Store regulations to forbid these kinds of analytics. And it was immediately, you know, it bothered him because he's big about surprise and delight. And it basically betrayed what Apple's upcoming product roadmap was. And it seems like that is not at all dissimilar to what these apps, right. they're not doing it for devices anymore, but they're doing it for the customers. And there is, it, yeah, and there, <laughs> it was like, so we, you know, all this, this company came out, they had, they had, uh, they used the analytics to figure out there was like a new iPad coming out, you know, cause they could tell from, you know, the code running in yeah. the analytics, you know, framework you know, would probe the system and say, oh, yeah, this is iPhone or iPad model, you know, yeah. two comma one or whatever was a new iPad. And, you know, like he said, we, we looked at these apps and it turned out that they were all using this flurry analytics. And we were like, what the hell is that? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah he was mad. Yeah. Well, and it's an interesting kind of mad because he's aware that he's on stage. And, yes. you know, who can even imagine how, you know, what his reaction was inside Apple? <laughs> <laughs> when he wasn't on camera, wasn't on stage when he found out that this is what was going on. But it, it, it was an interesting anecdote, a really good pull. I had forgotten about it. And I feel like it really, you know, uh, it, I don't know. It, it really hit me in the video because it really shows how this has been going on for a while that Apple sort of has a blind spot to it because they don't collect it. Right. Like, yeah. and I feel like that what jobs is saying, you know, maybe they shouldn't have been surprised that, that well, he says that they're naive. That was the right. exact word he used. Yeah. So there you go, you know, right out of the, the horse's mouth. I mean, no, 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 uh, no bones about it. Right. Yeah. I feel like that it, it as much as you, you, would like to think, well, there Apple, you know, woke up and they got their handle on it. But it's for everything we've seen in the last few years, especially the last couple of months with these stories from TechCrunch and now the Wall Street Journal, that it's I don't know if you want if I want to say Apple is still naive about this stuff, but it's clearly spiraled out of the spiraled out of their control. In some ways. Yeah, and what's what's hard too is that there are a lot of edge cases. For for example, there was a brouhaha about apps uploading your contact information, which uh, is sometimes good, sometimes bad, because there are apps like you want to be able to download a third party address book app if you know one of our really creative friends were to make one. That's way better than the system app, and you'd have to grant it access to the universal contacts database for it to do anything important to you. The same way, like if you use Tweetbot, you have to give it access to your Twitter. Um, profile, but then there are other apps that want to spam your Twitter followers or other apps that want to just steal all your contacts. And once you grant permission, there has to be some way for Apple to then follow up and hold them accountable for what they do with that information. Did you see, I put it in the show notes that uh, our friends at Objective Development, that they're the makers of uh, a bunch of great Mac utilities like LaunchBar, and they have a longstanding utility called Little Snitch, which is a utility you install and then basically monitors every app you're running and notifies you when they make a network connection. And yes, you can say, okay, well, this is, you know, obviously I want you to allow my email client to connect to this server to get my email and send email. And you can say it, don't, you know, 
I don't want to be noted. You know, you can dial down the filters so that you're not getting pinged about everything because there's all sorts of stuff on your Mac that you know is making network connections. But it's a way to bring your attention to bits of network networking that you perhaps weren't uh, aware of. Um, yes. And they have something. I hadn't seen this, but they tweeted this at me. Uh, something called the Internet Access Policy. And they're, yeah, it looks great. Yeah, they're pitching it as like the equivalent of a privacy policy. Uh, yeah. In their own words, while the latter describes in clear text which personal data is processed, stored, and passed on, the Internet Access Policy describes in machine-readable form which internet connections a program creates and for what purpose. Yeah. I, it sounds great. Super plain language. Um, I really, really would like to see more developers get behind this. I'd like to see Apple get behind something like this. I would. So I would like on the first level, I would love for there just to be laws. Like there should really be laws protecting us. Data theft should be treated no differently than any other kind of theft. And if any, like I said in the video, if any startup CEO or developer even thinks about stealing this kind of information, they should wake up in a cold sweat, screaming, apologizing and pulling out the code because they'll do real jail time. Yeah. But, you know, that kind of stuff takes a long time. So in the meantime, if Will, you know, if Will can find this stuff, Apple should implement, should hire Will or implement somebody to do this kind of stuff internally. And they should require right on that page where it says, you know, the compatibility for your app, the, the age restrictions for your app should have. This is the personal data that we collect and this is who we share it with. And if developers think that's going to stop people from downloading, then they should reevaluate their business model. So they shouldn't put anything on there that they're not proud of. There was something I should correct uh, an episode or two ago. One of these ongoing scandals was about the framework, at least one. I don't know. I think it was a TechCrunch story, but basically that there's popular frameworks that apps use that um, yeah. record your screen activity yep. ostensibly for the purposes of like a B testing. And um, you know, there's certainly good uses for that sort of thing. Like if you want to track uh, what, see how people who, who first download your app go through the initial first run and what they tap on, where they stop. If, if 33% of the people, stop at a certain point and never really come back to the app that's good to know maybe you want to revisit that the problem is that they're doing this these apps are doing this without any kind of um permission yeah they're just they're just collecting the data and sending it i misspoke on the show and said that it i i, I was under the impression that it was just sending like um sort of data you know that the tap on this position this button was pressed this screen was open for 20 seconds that it wasn't like a movie, but I've been told, no, yeah, <laughs> it is a movie <laughs> that they're just, that, that what gets sent back to the developer, you just hit the play button and they can just watch you as though they were recording your screen, you know, as though, as though you were taking a movie, you know, they can see everything you did in there. And, and again, I asked about this. If you agree to it, fine. And 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 what you were agreeing to it was told you in very plain language, not some kind of inscrutable eight-point type, 5,000-word thing that you know everybody is going to skip past. 
Yeah. And I asked about this too, because almost all the apps that were caught doing this were like banking apps or, or big uh, hospitality companies. And it, it seemed weird because they every time you'd use those apps, it's making a server call and they know what you're hitting and when you're hitting it. But it was explained to me that they're just too, I don't know if lazy is the right word, but they, they were looking for an easy way to package that. And there are people that offered easy ways. So instead of them having to pull their server logs and like get hire someone to parse it for them and make it usable, they just threw in these frameworks that were that were making it easy for them. And it was good to see a bunch of developers say, you know, I would we would never use these. Our job doesn't need to be easy. It needs to be done with respect for our customers. And we can do this without using those sketchy frameworks. Uh, it's just ridiculous how it just goes on and on and on. Yeah. Um, I really they, do. They, Facebook, uh, like Facebook, just said that they don't like they don't allow their developers to take anything without your permission. Google refused to comment and just point at people at a policy. It, you know, it's it's just such a pervasive and. I actually misused the word in a post on Daring Fireball a couple of days ago and then decided that I, I wanted to use pervasive, but I used perverted. Yeah. And then I kept it when I edited it <laughs> and made it pervasive and perverted. It really is a perverted yeah. attitude on privacy. Like I and I really feel like I'm I've been naive about this to a certain extent like I've kind of known that it's going on but the more that comes out the more I'm I find myself I I think of myself as cynical and I don't really trust the I have long-standing opposition to a lot of the ad tech industry this whole idea of of tech tracking and and personalizing advertising um and even being a cynic on this front and being involved and supporting myself through advertising and and in a very purposeful way avoiding the privacy you know my whole career has been based on trying to do ad supported publishing and podcasting in a way that is 100% respectful of reader and listener privacy I, even as a cynic, I find myself almost staggered by the depths of it and and the the sort of default mentality, both from Facebook and Google, maybe lump Amazon in with them too as as the gorilla titanic companies that are collecting these dossiers on people to all of the the little fish, just the individual apps from yeah uh, you know. 50 i mean how many banks have apps in in the app store hundreds i'm sure probably thousands from you know around the world how many of those apps are are sending weird shit to the banks <laughs> about what people are doing in the apps like yeah why and one of the worst parts is you know um Google has a business like Facebook and data harvesting and a business like Apple in running an app marketplace. And it's very hard to imagine Google doing what's best for customers and what's best for Google at the same time. They're almost divided against themselves. And when Will was looking at the apps for Google, it was way harder to try to figure out what they were doing than the apps from iOS. You know, we uh, when when Brent and Dave Wiskus and I were making Vesper a notes app. We we were very and we were going to do our own sync. We were very cognizant that we we have no idea what people are putting in their notes. We don't want to know. We want to set this up in a way where we can't know. You know, there was no view that we had where we could look at the notes. The notes were stored, you know, encrypted on the server. Uh, 
But, you know, it's just a silly little notes app that we were selling for four bucks. But we figured, you know, who knows? Any, people could write anything and everything in a notes app. So the most we important to, thing in their lives could be right, in that note. Right. We take it, you know, let's, let's, let's be very deliberate every step of the way. Um, I can't help but think, like, if, if you were working on a team that was making a period tracker for women, yeah. you have to recognize instantly that this is super private information. This is super personal uh, you know, hard to get more personal than than a woman's uh, health. Uh, yeah, you would just th- think every step of the way. Let's not screw up. Like that's what we were thinking with Vesper. Is lo- how you know? Let's let's follow. You know, all the best practices we can. Let's be cautious. I mean, and I say we. Brent really was the one who <laughs> designed and built the sync <laughs> service. But it, we were all on board with. Okay, Brent, take your time and you know do this in a, a very cautious, deliberately err on the side of, you know, let's make sure this is as solid as possible. That's just thinking about mistakes, bugs, like, oh my God, we screwed up and we exposed personal information through blank accidentally. We're horrified. Let's do, you know, let's fix it. Let's tell everybody, let's notify, you know, let's get in front of this, whatever. That's the mentality you would just like to think that everybody has. But on the other hand, here's these companies that it's not mistakes. It, it's purposeful. It's let's include this Facebook analytic package in that's going to instantly send all of this data to Facebook. Like the mentality behind that, doing that clearly on purpose, right? You don't yeah. <laughs> accidentally include a Facebook analytics framework in your app and have it wired up to, you know, the data. It, it, it's. I really feel like it is hard to overstate the the outrage that we collectively should have. And at, like you said, that our lawmakers across the globe should yeah. have about getting on, on top of this. And you, frankly, like, again, like it's hard to expect Google to do anything because they're conflicted on this. But Apple, they, they, they if you talk to the Face ID team, for example, it wasn't like, let's make Face ID and then we'll figure out how to make it private. It's like you are not allowed to make Face ID unless every step along the way has been carefully considered for preserving privacy. And that's not just Face ID. That's everything that they build. And the same thing needs to be applied to the App Store, um, you know, especially because, I, again, I don't think Google's going to do it. And if Apple's making this their you know, top-down, front-facing, most important feature, then they've got to do that throughout their stack. It's the way everything is monetized, too. Like, the way that these apps are all free, and it, it's... And I know there's... Free as in your data. Yeah, and there's the Tim Cook line that he loves a lot, which is... Um, if you're not the paying customer, you're the what's it, what's that? Right, I'm. <laughs> you're the product. Yeah. You're the product, right? And there's truth to that, and I realize it doesn't apply in every way, but there is it, it, there is a problem with expecting all this stuff to be free, and that they're selling you're, you're you're exchanging your privacy instead of your money for these products and services, and I I think that people are starting to catch on to this, and I I really feel like the industry has spent. It's not just like an app era thing. It's really an internet era thing. It you know it goes to to you know to the whole use of the web and how many websites have been free and and the tracking goes back to the origins of ads on the internet. Um, and famously, you know, people don't like to pay for digital stuff, right? People, you know, famously, you know, they'll spend. $1,100 on a phone and then yeah. balk at spending $2 on a game for the phone. 
but I feel like people are starting to wake up to the fact that this stuff isn't really free, that there's something being lost in the exchange here and that the, the, the extraordinary, um, just lack of respect that these companies have for customer privacy is really starting to burst out of the, uh, oh, that's just inside baseball and, and break into the mainstream conversation about how we live our, our lives in this ever more digital world. I, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And again, uh, humans, just psychologically, evolutionarily speaking, we are tuned to think about the present and not the future. And almost all the time, we will mortgage our future for the present. And these are so good at doing that because you think, oh, it's free. You don't see data the way you see time, the way right. you see money. You don't feel it leaving your wallet. And everybody is data rich. It's a great equalizer. Different people have different kinds of money, different amounts of time, different amounts of money. But we all have invaluable data for these companies and they will happily take as much as we will give in exchange for what we think are free products, but are really front ends for data harvesting services. You know, I use this analogy all the time that we wouldn't tolerate in the real world, what we tolerate online, you know, like where you go shopping for a pair of boots in a store and then all of a sudden every tab in your browser has ads for brown boots um, we wouldn't tolerate it in the real world. If you went into a shoe store in the real world and looked at a pair of boots and thought about them and thought, you know what, I'm not going to buy these, and you walk down the street, if somebody from the store followed you or somebody from a boot company followed you and started asking you, you know, hey, how about these boots? How about the, how about we go into Macy's and, and uh, you know, look for boots? Macy's has a sale on boots. Uh, you, you, you'd be so creeped out. It, it would, you know, it, you'd, you'd be... You know, you'd you'd object. You know, you would be like, you wouldn't just tolerate it, right? You'd freak out in a way. And yet, that's how uh, we, everything yeah. go, happens online. Yeah, if any of the stuff was made manifest, I think we talked about this uh, last time. If you were forced to see all your nudie pics and all your personal health data go into a literal representation of these servers, you'd be aghast. But it's it's all invisible to you. There's no real. There's no perceived cost. Yeah, it's it's really. I don't know. Um, where do you think this is going with Facebook? I, and and on the App Store, like here's a, I think you agree with me, but I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I feel like okay, Apple actually is on the right in this that they they really do, um, they really do want to protect customers' privacy, and they really don't want to collect this stuff themselves. But I think. You, at least on a, even though they're not doing it and, and they're not condoning it, uh, it's happening in apps that are going through their store. And so they, I do feel like they bear a certain responsibility for this and for addressing uh, it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, again, I think it's a triple phase approach. I think ultimately there has to be regulation. Until there's regulation, it defaults down to the platforms, Microsoft, Apple, and Google. Uh, and again, pointing out that Google's conflicted on this. Uh, they... What I would love Apple to do is to require the privacy disclosure to be on the product page and then to do exactly what Will does and sniff the products to make sure that what they're disclosing is the same as what's on the page. And if it's not, they reject them. And if it's malicious, they do what they've done with other violators, and that is 
delete their developer accounts. And that will create an environment where this sort of behavior, like this sort of behavior, we become normalized to it. Like it just seems like it's what everybody does is desensitizing because there's a new scandal every day. And the only way to stop that is to start doing things that are severe, things that force you to wake up and pay attention. And I feel like if Apple, Apple's the only one in any position to do this, because I'm not really sure what the state of the Windows market is right now. And Google probably will never do this, at least not if Apple doesn't do it first. But they're in a real position to set uh, the same standard for these apps that they're setting for themselves internally. Uh, and then things like what you pointed out with the little snitch company to help developers who are doing this get the recognition that they deserve and to get you know, our confidence as customers. And until those things happen, they're gonna, companies are going to keep doing this because it's easy. They get um, bribed and uh, extorted by the Googles and the Facebooks to include this stuff, and they get benefits from doing it. It, you know, it feeds both their laziness and their, and their finances, so they're going to keep doing it until someone stops them. Yeah, but I really do feel like Apple has to, and, and you know, have, they need to act quicker than legislation is going to happen. They can't just stand behind and say, "Well, this stuff is is legal." Um, I'm not quite sure what that is, but I think you're right, though, that part of it would be having taking like what Traffic does and and make it part of the um, the review process. It's probably not simple enough. I mean, with some of this stuff like the screen recording, um, once the story broke, because there's a known list of these uh, analytics frameworks that supply it, they they could automate the process of uh, looking through all the thousands and thousands of apps in the app store and finding apps that have these frameworks and... you know a lot of these apps got like the developers got like a hey you've got you know three days to remove x y and z from your app uh, or it's going to be taken out of the app store so you know they obviously have that capability that was it's kind of cool that they could do that but it's not enough like they don't want to get into a situation of whack-a-mole where okay now we know we have to change the name of the framework and make it cost you know hide it from the app store review team Um, they don't want to go down that path. I think, you know, the, the thing that they can monitor is actually looking at the network calls that are going out of the app and where they're going. There's no way to hide that. I mean, they can't necessarily see within them because hopefully all those calls are using SSL. So they're encrypted, but they can at least see which servers are being notified. Yeah, which is what Will did. He pulled out like the the Google Analytics data. There was that case of Uber saying, "Don't do this if you're in the vicinity of Cupertino," but they right. got they still got caught. And to me, that would be the malicious part that just gets your account deleted. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously the rules are different when you're Uber, and this drives some people crazy because they feel like Facebook and Google and Uber, you know, get special treatment, and they do the same way. Like America will respond to China differently than it'll yeah. respond to some very small, uh, you know, country. Uh, but the and you know a lot of people use and depend on these services and in essence you have the web so like if you ever wanted to get rid of the facebook app you could people could still log into facebook on safari so i think it has to go beyond just looking at it from the punitive sense it has to be really fixing this this problem yeah well it's an ongoing saga (laughs) (laughs) all right let me take a break and thank our first sponsor it's a new sponsor i love this company it's really really neat it's called marine layer like marine, like uh, water, marine layer. Marine layer makes clothing casual, stuff like sweatshirts and pullovers and T-shirts for men and women. They make their own fabric. They've really started from the ground up. 
and they really talked about <laughs> the word soft and their stuff is so very soft really really soft t-shirts it's really kind of amazing and really stylish very cool lots of stuff to choose from it's not like oh this feels nice soft it is like holy shit how did they make this i'm never taking it off soft and it turns out one of the ways they did this by making their fabric is that they make them from trees it's called micromodal and it's found in marine soft's signature fabric and it's made from recycled beech wood the pulp production is self-sufficient which makes their teas sustainable, eco-friendly, and, as I said, soft. They also have some really cool stuff for sizing, where they have in-between sizes that they call like Marge, which is in-between medium and large, and Larger, which is bigger than large, but smaller than extra large, uh, for people who just don't conform to standard sizes. They have an insanely good return policy. You can return pretty much anything for up to a year, and they stand by their clothes, and they offer free shipping and free returns on all U.S. orders. Wow. That's really great. Here's what the deal. They've got quality product, lots of selection, really, really soft fabric, really comfortable, great customer experience with free shipping and returns. So here's what you do. You get 15% off your first order. That's a special deal for listeners of the, of the show. Go to marinelayer.com and enter the promo code TTS at checkout. That's promo code TTS for the talk show. And that gets you 15% off your first order at marinelayer.com. Absolutely great stuff. All right. Here's something I've been thinking about. So, uh, and I don't think I've talked about it on the show. And if I have, I've blacked out and forgotten it. <laughs> uh, there is an Apple privacy related, uh, the elephant in the room and it ties into Apple's services narrative. And that look at our services revenue is growing, growing, growing. And, and the basic gist is, Hey, of these big five companies, you know, especially Google and Facebook, uh, maybe lump Amazon in, you know, these guys are doing sketchy stuff with your privacy. We're not, we're Apple. We're not doing it. The elephant in the room is the money that Apple gets from Google yeah. for making Google search the default in Safari across the Mac and, let's face it, in particular, iOS. Um, it's uh, I think it's Goldman Sachs who did some work on this and estimated it at like $8 billion for 2018. Um, and I think that they estimate that it might go up to like $12 billion. Yeah, for 2019. Uh, that's a lot of money. And it's a yeah. fairly high. Well, it's a lot of money, period, right? We're talking $12 billion. That's, I mean, that's by anybody's standards, even Apple and Google, that's a lot of money. Um, it's also a big chunk of Apple's services revenue, like a big chunk of Apple's services revenue is the and I'm not going to say they don't have to do anything, but effectively, yeah, they're just keeping Google as the default mm -hmm. search engine in Safari. So all of this stuff with Apple Music and with iCloud and with their upcoming video service, with their supposedly upcoming subscription news service and anything else that would be filed under the look at all these new initiatives we have to increase services revenue. A big chunk of the money just comes from making Google the default search engine. And 
the privacy angle on this is how can we say that Google has problems, you know, is a problematic company in terms of respecting people's privacy while pocket, while Apple is pocketing $10 billion a year, <laughs> like where do they think that money is coming from? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, there's a, I did a video on this too, but there was, there's a whole bunch of things that people, that people say that, you know, like there's the China situation and there's just several of these. And the one that, you cannot justify is is Google. Now I've used DuckDuckGo for because you know, of the issues I have with Google, and it's simply not as good. And that's Apple's overall point is that Google is the best search engine. But once you know, if Apple just chose it and wasn't getting paid for it, that's an easy position to defend. Google is the best search engine. Still, we understand there's problems with it, but we believe it's the best for our customers, so we're using it. And there's no money changing hands. The minute the money changes hands, then it's it's impossible to say whether it's the best or not anymore. Um, if I had my druthers, there would be a box that pops up because you can change it. It's not like it's the only search engine. You can go into Safari settings and choose DuckDuckGo or Yahoo or Microsoft. And I don't know why they're still in there, but you can. Uh, but if, if I had my druthers, the first time, the first run experience for Safari would pop up, which search engine do you want to use? And if people tap on Google because they prefer the results and they understand you know, what, what comes with them, that's great. If they have concerns, they can tap DuckDuckGo and that's great too. And you know, people, maybe people who work at Microsoft could tap on Bing, but whatever you'd have a you'd have a conscious user decision to do it, and Google could even pay them a bounty for every person who taps on Google if they really wanted to. But to me, that's sort of once you make privacy your distinguishing feature, you've set the bar much higher yeah. uh, because you know I think Firefox famously gets almost all their money from Google as well, which is right. super ironic giving Firefox the statements. And Apple previously would say, yeah, we use Google as a default, but we do everything we can to deny them information with do not track and with providing garbage input into the machine tracking and by killing all the social plugins and killing the ads. And that might be true. They're still taking all the money. And they do some stuff that I would think uh, Google would prefer they didn't. Like when you in, you're in Safari and you start typing in the magic you know, search or URL field, they have sometimes, depending on what, what you type, um, suggested results that aren't from your search engine provider, you know, that Apple is somehow guessing what it is, you know, it's like the top items sometimes, um, you know, Siri, I guess they call them Siri suggestions, yeah. right? Um, but for the most part, you know, a lot of the stuff that goes through that field goes through Google. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, it must be, if, there's so many negotiations that I would love to be a fly on the wall for. That is one that must be fascinating to me because Apple's obviously, I mean, if, if we take Goldman Sachs's uh, numbers and I think they're, I, I would probably wager that if they're not spot on, they're close enough, you know, that it was somewhere between eight to 12 billion, 2018 and now in 2019, they're obviously getting a lot of money from Google. But on the other hand, Google is coming at this from a, a very strong position of strength in terms of, well, what are you going to do? Are you really going to make Bing the default search engine, right? Are you really going to make DuckDuckGo the default search engine? Come on. So there, it, it would be worth a lot more. Think, I, I think about this. If it's worth roughly $10 billion a year now, imagine what it would be worth in a world where there were two or three search engines that were, yeah. that were arguably um, of equal... Like Quality. Really competitive, right? What if Bing results really were indistinguishable from Google search results? 
um, I suspect, I don't know, but, and I, I suppose that they could prepare for this in advance. It wouldn't be sprung on them at the last moment, but I would wager heavily that Apple couldn't make like flip a switch tomorrow and make DuckDuckGo the default search engine that DuckDuckGo wouldn't be able to handle that sudden increase in traffic. Um, and you can't really do that. That's, this is part of, part of Google's strength in negotiating too, is with, you know, so many hundreds of millions of iOS users. I mean, what does Apple estimate as the user base? Is it up to a billion yet? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. I think it's a billion devices, maybe not a billion people, but, you know, it's hundreds of millions of people, clearly. They, in some way, I'm not going to say can't. Can't is obviously they could, but it would be very difficult to change the default on people just when they upgrade the OS, right? When you upgrade yeah. to iOS. Um, I guess it'll be 14 this year, or is it 13? I even did it intentionally. Where, I switched what number to Duck, we Duck, <laughs> 13. But 13. I switched to DuckDuckDo, and the first time I used it, I didn't recognize the search page results. Right. No, it just seemed very confusing. Yeah, it's, you know, and there's an awful lot of people, and, and it really gets to the, you know, people aren't supposed to be technical experts. That's the whole, yeah. you know, Apple way of, of, you know, that's been Apple's, motto from the get-go but google's role google searches role on the internet is if you know how the web works and you you know you know how to build a website and you basically know you don't have to be able to write a search engine but if you basically know it's just a simple form you type words you hit the button and then it goes to the server and the server takes that query and makes its best guess as to what it is you're looking for you know you realize there is no anybody could make a search engine there are dozens and yeah. dozens of search engines before google really grew to prominence there you know there was no dominant search engine there were a yeah. handful I, I was always an alta vista man me too what about right? you? <laughs> Alta Vista was my go-to. Yeah, uh, same. Uh, you know, but but most people don't don't realize that. Like they see Google as the internet, right? Yeah. The, you know, it, it, there's the famous stories about uh, that the way people would get to Facebook is they go to Google and type Facebook login and hit yeah. go. <laughs> you know, it is effectively. The Google search field is effectively like a command line interface to the internet. Yeah, you know, and and unlike the old command lines of Unix terminal and DOS, where everything is super fragile, and you can make terrible mistakes, or you have to type the name of the command precise, you know, make one character mistake. You know, it's wonderfully user friendly in that you can make all sorts of spelling mistakes and not even use spaces and somehow it figures out what you want anyway and it just works and they're at the top of your results is exactly what you're looking for um it, it it i think even if people understood if you could somehow sit everybody down across the world and and give them a 15 minute lecture on what is a search engine and how do you change your search, your default search engine and make them understand this people would still be angry if their default was switched <laughs> just by upgrading to iOS 13 or whatever yeah. let alone the fact that they wouldn't understand <laughs> they would be like what the hell is this all right yep 
so it you know it's a tough position like i i don't know that apple you know i'm not again i'm not going to say can't but it would be very difficult for them to not have google as their default search engine in safari even if they wanted to um but nobody's forcing them to pocket money from it yeah and i, I mean we say that it's 12 billion dollars and if they offered me 12 billion dollars to use google i right. certainly take it well and and it it's, it reminds me of an argument that i often have with people about sports where people will argue sports fans will will argue that such and such player, you know, is going to sign a, a thirty million dollar a year contract, and they say, "Well, nobody deserves. No, that's too much money. These play, these players yeah. are greedy. Why in the world, you know, do you need that much money?" Well, if the players weren't making the money that they're making, it's not like they're going to lower the yes. ticket prices yep. in the stadiums <laughs> and arenas, and it's not like they're going to lower the price of the commercials they're selling during the telecasts, which, let's face it, is where most of the money in pro sports comes from. They're not going to lower the price of those ads that they see courtside or ring, you know, along along the ring rink of the, the, the you know, the hockey arena. Or, uh, all of that stuff, it's just going to stay with the owners of the teams, right? If they're not, yep. the less they pay the players, the more it's going to stay with the owners of the teams. And is that really what you want as a sports fan? Uh, you know, the rise in sports salaries going to players is actually a good thing. You know, historically, 40, 50 years ago, it's almost criminal how underpaid players were in professional sports, at least in the United States. Um, you know, the, the owners of ba the baseball teams collectively conspired <laughs> to underpay their players and and not allow them free agency. It, I mean, all of this stuff is actually relatively new to pro sports. Um, anyway, along those same lines, if Apple weren't taking $10 billion a year from Google for Google's being the default search engine and just did it for free to keep their hands clean, that money would be in Google's pockets. <laughs> so, you know. It's a tax. They're taxing Google. <laughs> I, but I really feel like this is uh, something that Google, uh, it, it's getting untenable for Apple to keep taking this pro privacy stance without addressing this publicly. Yeah, it will. It will always be used against them until it's addressed. I really do wonder. I know. Um, I, Duck Duck Go. I didn't write about it, but I actually visited them recently um, because um, the one cool thing that's happened recently is that. DuckDuckGo and Apple have partnered on Maps, and yeah. DuckDuckGo now uses Apple Maps as its mapping data. Um, so it shows you Apple Maps when you search for a location um, all around the world, uh, and it's way—it's a huge upgrade for DuckDuckGo. Yeah. Uh, they were using like open something maps beforehand because DuckDuckGo has they're not just more private than Google or Bing or something like that. Like privacy is actually fundamental to DuckDuckGo's mission. It's actually a higher priority for them than search you know result accuracy. So they 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 don't show or or distribute any third party code. Like when you visit DuckDuckGo, there are no none of the ads that they do have come from third parties and inject any kind of JavaScript or something like that from a from any server other than theirs. Um, that's a problem. They had to work with Apple to get this map thing to work because the maps obviously aren't just static images. There is a lot of code involved. Um, but effectively, it all gets proxied 
through DuckDuckGo's servers. So you go to DuckDuckGo as a user in Safari, and you type your query, and the query goes to DuckDuckGo. And if it's a location-related query, or the re- results involve location stuff. DuckDuckGo, on their server, talks to maps.apple.com and gets everything it needs, and it goes to DuckDuckGo, and then DuckDuckGo delivers it to you. So maps.apple.com never sees your IP address, never talks to you directly. Um, and you don't have to know this. Nobody, no regular person just using DuckDuckGo would know this. Um, but that's how seriously they take your privacy. It's a really cool thing. Uh, and it really is the sort of thing that gives DuckDuckGo, it, it, they're too small of a company. I forget how many employees they have. It's somewhere like around 60 around the world. Um, that's the total size of the company. Um, they, But effectively now they have a multi-billion dollar partner giving, helping them with maps, which is truly fascinating and apple is motivated to make its maps better you know this is an area where clearly they are at best in second place uh you know to google um they have terrific motivation in various ways to make their maps better and not just you know yeah, let's spend a year or two making our maps better and then forget it. This is something that the company obviously has to be committed to on an ongoing basis in perpetuity from now until the end of maps being a useful thing, <laughs> right? And DuckDuckGo, as Apple Maps continues to improve and as directions and whatever else you get from Apple Maps, the data on the maps, the 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 base, you know, of um, uh, interesting locations, where stores are. You know, the, one of the Apple's recent initiatives is where's all the where are all the stores and retailers inside uh, airport terminals. As that stuff improves, DuckDuckGo just gets it all for free, effectively. Uh, I thought that's pretty interesting. There's a bunch of people who just every time we talk about this say Apple should buy DuckDuckGo, make it the default search engine, this and invest is, heavily in it. But <laughs> this is where this is. You've read my mind. This is where I'm going. Is yes, it, that this comes and I, I, I've thought about that. I have thought about that a lot. I'm sure that people at Apple have thought about it, um, but I don't think it's as simple. I don't think it's a very simple decision. I think there's a lot of very complex ramifications. I think it's tempting to think of it simply because surely Apple could write a check that DuckDuckGo is big enough that DuckDuckGo would say yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I, I don't, I really doubt it would even be if Apple decided they wanted to go that route. I don't even know that it would be a long negotiation. I suppose it's possible that DuckDuckGo, you know, um, um, you know, values its independence, and you know, maybe that number is higher than you would than than it would be if they were looking to sell, which I I know that they're not. Um, it, but surely Apple could, you know. <laughs> It wouldn't take too long for them to add enough zeros at the end. Yes, I was thinking the same thing. I just saw the check getting longer. (laughs) You know, like they write a check and then, you know, instead of like crossing out the first number and making that one bigger, they just add add another zero at the end. And like, what about now? Um, So I don't think that part of it would be complicated. Um, I think, though, 
that it it would be comp. I, I think that there's at certain at a certain angle. I think Apple enjoys not owning a search engine. You know, and and think about all the controversies that pop up yep. all the time. Where, um, I mean, a recent one it's is this vaccination stuff where anti-vaccination propaganda comes up in, in, in at the top of these search results, either in search engines or Facebook, I think was just busted uh, for, for, you know, you search on <laughs> Facebook for vaccination stuff and it's all anti-vaccination stuff. Yeah. Um, and part of it is the fact that I, I just read a story that the pro, you know, pro vaccination doctors and experts have sort of given up because they were, their stuff was getting buried anyway and it's settled science anyway. So there really isn't, there shouldn't be, there isn't really much new stuff to write about. Um, Apple by it, by not having a search engine, they avoid that. I mean, and there's all, you know, you name it. You, we, we could spend an hour listing controversial topics and yes, absolutely. And where they fall in search results, and I by mean, not YouTube has gone through two weeks of utter chaos over the very topic, right? A lot lately, right, right. Uh, YouTube, yeah, is absolutely it's almost in disarray. Yeah, um, you know, it, both in terms of algorithmic. Uh, well, I, I, the algorithmic recommendations is at the heart of it, but a big part of it too is the unmoderated comments and the subject of the yeah. comments and. Um, uh, so I, on the one hand, I think Apple likes not owning a search engine. Um, I also think they like making $10 billion a year from Google. And yes. uh, it would be very, uh, you know, and this is what, where I, I see this as a sort of unspoken conflict of interest on Apple's part on privacy is let's say they do buy DuckDuckGo and they just rename it Apple Search. Yeah. And they maintain all of these private, you know, make it as private as they can. Um, and let's even further stipulate that they uh, improve the search results to the point where it's it's on par with Google search results. You know, that people are as satisfied with it as, as in general as they are with Google search. Um, I really doubt that Apple would be able to make... 10 to 15 billion dollars a year with without uh changing their their privacy right like the whole reason google make that it's so google search is so valuable makes so much money that google's willing to spend 10 billion dollars a year just to make it the default in in these in in one browser um apple would have let's face it would have to forego a chunk of that revenue I mean, presumably this, they could have some kind of ads, but it wouldn't be ad. The ads wouldn't be as lucrative as Google's. It's the developer ads from the app store. <laughs> <laughs> but no, there's this anecdote about when Google started and Larry and Sergey were adamant that it would have no ads because when the minute you introduce ads, it would fundamentally corrupt the very nature of the search engine. They wanted it to be this very pure, very scientific, very egalitarian, very proper thing. But then the dot-com bubble burst and there are VCs because the minute you take VCs, you are no longer in charge of your destiny their vcs said you have to monetize and so they turned on ads and 
ads are like ultimate power that inevitably leads to corruption because you are no you are no longer making a product to serve the customer. You're now making a product to serve the advertiser or the monetization engine. And I don't, you know, Apple would have to spend almost all that money as a giveaway just to provide a service for users with very little upside to it. And Apple is Apple is good at spending money on accessibility. They're good at spending money on several things that they get no return from. And Tim Cook is famously, because Angry Tim is my favorite, has famously stood up and said, we don't give a damn about the ROI. But when you start operating services at scale, which would be like iMessage on the web or for Android or FaceTime on the web or for Android or a search engine, all of these things, and it doesn't fit into Apple's existing business model, they would either have to do it at a loss, and there's only so many of those things they could do at a loss, or they'd have to start doing what big companies do to support that and that would make them just like Facebook and Google. Now, DuckDuckGo does make money and they have ads, but they do it in a way that is completely respectful of your privacy and does, doesn't track you. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I've spoken to them about it. Um, I, I, you know, they didn't tell me exactly how much money they make and how much they make per search or something like that. Because, um, you know, it's obviously confidential information, competitive. Yeah. Um, I'd be willing to bet, though, that they make less money per search than Google makes per search. Oh, yeah. That it's less lucrative. So Apple Google, could, they're like literally bidding. They right. put people in a situation to bid on those ads. Right. Um, that's a tough position for Apple to be in. And I think it's easier for Apple to say, we don't want to own our, our own search engine because that's not our area of expertise and we don't want to be responsible for it, whatever. But it's hard not to also think that they also enjoy their current relationship where their yeah. hands are clean, but they still get eight now $12 billion a year from, from Google doing things that they themselves are condemning privacy. wise. And being pragmatically, this isn't new. Like a lot of people will just say, Oh, Tim Cook is greedy. This, this relationship has been going on. Like even famously when Steve jobs was at war with Google, it didn't change the default search engine in iOS. And at this point, like you said, when you change it, not only does it affect every user, but if you suddenly remove that income from Apple services division, that's a whole different story on wall street as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly, you know, that they've, if anything, that's the other thing that I feel a little uncomfortable looking at, you know, where's where, you know, the state of Apple today and where they're going. It, it, it's not just that I care about privacy. It's that hmm, I, I see this as a conflict, you know, that there's tension yeah. inside Apple where they're promoting this services narrative to wall street as this is the area of growth. You know, yes. Our, I mean, Apple hasn't admit Apple hasn't said categorically iPhone unit sales are never going to grow again, but you know, the truth is they probably aren't. They probably have, we probably have seen peak iPhone in terms of unit sales, um, uh, you know, and pushing services is, but look, we have significant growth and lots of headroom in this services area, but where this huge chunk of it comes from <laughs> just making Google search, the default search engine really would make it hard for them to change that at all. And you start having all these things, like when you sold computers, you had to deal with resellers. And when you sold phones, you had to deal with carriers. And when you sold music and TV, you had to deal with the entertainment industry. But now you have to deal with medical regulation to be into health. You have to deal with uh, the, the organizations that govern financial stuff when you get into Apple Pay and Apple credit cards and all these other things. And you start adding all these services businesses, you start having to deal with not only the regulatory bodies, but all the companies that are entrenched in those sectors. And it is messy. And, you know... 
Yeah. And it's fun too to think about in the what if, well, what else could Apple do? Right. And they do, like I said, they do some things where they have these series suggested results that don't go through Google. But let's face it, one of the things Google is interested in is not just keeping track of your search results, but having you logged in to Google so that when you go to Google search, your your Google profile is yes. already there and you can switch to, you know, you can go to other Google properties and you're there. That obvious, you know, when you're logged into Google, um, and I try to log out of Google all the time and I Me still too. often find myself like, Oh, I've been logged in for days. Like, you know, I, I don't know that it's nefarious on Google. You log into your Gmail and then all of a sudden right. you're automatically logged into maps, into YouTube and yep. a bunch of other apps as well. Uh, and that's for me is often where, where it happens is I do, I will log in to use Gmail and it's just easier to do it in a regular tab than to make a private yeah. tab or I guess what I've tried to do recently is I don't really use Chrome much for anything. Um, and I've kind of got my Safari content blocking set up down where I, I don't need to use Chrome because stuff I, I've got a, a nice setup where I, I, there are very few websites I find that break in Safari because I've got content blockers or something and I have to go to Chrome or something like that. So I tend to just use Chrome just for using Google stuff. Um, but anyway, one thing that Apple could obviously do would be to have some kind of, okay, you know, we'll keep Google as the default search engine, but we'll also add a default behavior that will just erase cookies from Google every four hours. Yes. And so you're, you know, unless you, you know, you can go into settings, Safari search and, you know, toggle a, a simple check mark to say, uh, well, I guess they're not check marks anymore. What do we call what do we call check marks on iOS? Those those little uh I just I still call them check marks. I don't know if there's yeah. a, I'm sure we'll get an email now that we on off. I guess they would call them we should call them on off switches. Radio button, yeah. Right. Well they're not radio toggles. buttons, though. Radio toggles. Yeah. Toggles. Well, the thing that's effectively a checkbox. You could turn yeah. it on, but it's going to be off by default and it will, you know, it'll just keep you logged out of Google even after you log in uh, after I don't know two hours or four hours or something like that. I'm pretty sure if Apple did that, it, that would, uh, that would, <laughs> A, that would probably, they'd have to, that would have to be part of a new negotiation. I'm, I'm, I would be fairly certain that Google is smart enough that they've, the letter of their contract with Google, with Apple for making Google the search engine, you know, um, as it exists right now, I'd be very surprised if it doesn't preclude something like that. The scarier right. thing is for Google to say, fine, we don't need you to help us put right. this information right. We know who they are anyway. It would be terrifying. It's funny because I try to use Google in Chrome too. And because our company, Mobile Nations on iMore, they, we use Google accounts. And I try not to stay logged in, but I have to to use my work stuff. And then it keeps saying, you need to sign into sync. And I, I don't want to sign into sync. So every time I refuse, it takes me out of my Mobile Nations account and gives me this fake cupcake renee avatar that i don't know what it is and i can't get out of it until i close everything and relog back into my account and they just do all these little things to make your life more miserable when you're not logged into them <laughs> cupcake avatar. uh all right let me take a break here and thank our next sponsor longtime sponsor of the show one of my favorite companies on the internet fracture look everyone takes and shares photos online i'll bet you Dear listener of the talk show, I'm willing to bet you have already taken at least one photo with your phone today. Maybe it's the first, maybe, maybe you're listening on your morning commute and you can say, ha ha, John, you're wrong. I haven't, but then I'll bet you will take at least one photo with your phone today 
We all do, right? How many days go by where you don't take at least one photo? I, I take them all the time. Our phone full with thousands of photos every year. And we share them online. We post them to Instagram. We put them in iMessage. Uh, we look at them on our phones. We look at them on our other devices. You know what's great with your photos, though? Take the ones you like the most. The ones that really, the, the people you love the most, your family, your significant others, your friends, the places you've gone that are the most visually stimulating. Print them out. Get them printed. Hang them on your wall in an analog form. There's nothing, no better way to decorate your house, no matter what your sense of decor is. I did, it just makes you happy, makes you, your living space better to just cover the walls with your personal photos of the people you love and the places you've been. And one of the best ways to do it is with Fracture. They print your photos directly on glass. If you're a longtime listener to the show, you've heard me told you this before. But you really have to see it in person. The first time you, anybody, I, I know I've talked to people and they're like, you know, you've talked my ear off about Fracture on your podcast so many times. And then I finally saw one and I was like, oh, you're right. It doesn't look anything like a piece of paper with a photo on it mounted under glass. It really looks different by printing directly on the glass. It looks so much better. It's so amazing. Um, and every one you get, whether it's really big and they have really big sizes or really small, and they've got ones right down to like little three by three squares that you can put on your desk. Uh, everything comes in the box that you need to hang it or to prop it up on your mantle, on your desk, whatever you need. And you don't need to put these in a frame. There is no frame. The piece of glass with the image that goes edge to edge, corner to corner, it, it just hangs on the wall, mounts on your desk with no frame, just pure picture edge to edge. Uh, and they're handmade right here in the U.S. in their quote-unquote factory in Gainesville, Florida. Uh, it's a timeless design. They really do. They're so minimal with no frame, just just corner-to-corner picture. They really do go with any decor. So here's where you go to find out more. Uh, go to fracture.me. That's fracture.me. And you'll get a special discount on your first Fracture order just by going there. And then don't forget to pick the talk show in their one question survey after checkout. And that question is, where'd you hear about Fracture? Uh, Fracture.me is their website. You'll get a code, you'll get a discount just by going there on your first order. Uh, Mother's Day is coming up. Uh, great gift idea. My thanks to Fracture for their continuing support of the talk show. Love that company. Uh, what else is on the agenda today? I had uh, so many. So much. Uh, here's, <laughs> how about the, um, how about the, uh, uh, shot on iPhone challenge. Yeah. Apple announced the winners yesterday. A lot of iPhone XS Max and a lot of Americans. Uh, yeah, I was wrong. I said I would eat my hat if at least one winner didn't come from China. There were no winners from China. Uh, there was a judge from China, which is interesting because you yeah. think that there would have been, it's just given the size of the market. Yeah. I just linked to this before we started recording the show. Uh, I love the winners. I, I'm not surprised that they're great. I mean, I, I think it's one of the, not just a great Apple ad campaign. I think it's been one of the best ad campaigns in recent years is the shot on iPhone ad campaign. And I feel like it's, it's a great campaign in so many ways because it makes good photographs make for good billboards, right? Yep. It is a thing that real people really do with their phones, 
I, I don't know if there's any single thing people do on their phone that mo, mo, more people do on their phones than take photographs, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sure listening. You text and take photos and you text your photos. That's right. <laughs> and you listen to music, right? I mean, yeah. and podcasts. Uh, I mean, we wouldn't have had so many arguments about headphone jacks if, yep. if that wasn't part of it. Um, and you know, and they obviously the iPhone camera is technically great. It is amazing. You know, and it's not just the iPhone, just modern high end cell phone cameras are just tremendous. Uh, yeah. uh, so I'm not surprised that these winners are good, but I really, I really do like them. Um, I love this one comment from Judge Austin Mann. Uh, yeah. Where he just says, it's just this one picture from Nikita Yurush in Belarus. Shot with an iPhone 7, which is pretty cool. Yep. That's the one thing I would have bet more than uh, that somebody, a winner would be from China, would be that at least some of the winners would be on older iPhones. Cause I, yeah. And again, I don't think that they cooked the books for it, uh, but I, you know, I, 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 I just know, and you see it in the ad campaigns too, that it's not just, oh, look what you can shoot with the latest and greatest $1,200 iPhone XS Max. It is, hey, the iPhone 7 from three years ago is still a tremendous camera. Anyway, in she the took, announcement for the, con- for the contest, they had success photos. Yeah, yeah, a couple of them. Um, yep. Anyway, Nikita's photo, which is, is also one of my favorites, is of a tennis court. Uh, like an orange tennis court. Maybe that's clay. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. With uh, the net and a line and a crack in the clay. Uh, and it's just a super simple photo. Uh, yeah. And I just love Austin Mann's comment. I love how accessible this image is. You don't have to travel to Iceland to capture something beautiful. It's right under your nose. Um, and I think that's so true because that's what I love about these iPhone I don't know I'm a longtime avid amateur photographer, um, and I love looking at truly great photos from truly great photographers because it's you know it's inspiring. It makes me want to up my photography game. And one of the things that I think is so fascinating about seeing pro photographers like Austin Mann, uh, you know, who's, who's if the name rings a bell, Austin Mann is uh, last few years has been doing uh reviews of new iphone cameras by taking them to exotic locations around the world like africa even the one year he was yeah uh with a bunch of silverback gorillas and i forget where else he's been i think incredibly talented photographer super talented photographer and a very nice guy i met him yeah he's amazing uh, uh, after the last iphone event uh uh, and, you know, we've corresponded by email for years, too. Um, but I met him in person, and he's super, super generous and really is a super great enthusiast about, like, helping people up their photography game with phones. But one of the things that's amazing looking at the images coming from a pro photographer like that is you just have no excuse about equipment. <laughs> like, like, you can't say, well, he is using a $5,000 And I love how he gives, SLR. like, feedback, too, because he's like, I love this new H- smart HDR thing, but you're making it impossible for me to take silhouettes, and that's part of my artistic yeah. repertoire. So can, you, can we figure this out? Right. That's actually very true. Um, uh and, you know, a couple of these photos are taken in exotic locations, but most of them aren't. And I, that really is inspiring, too. But it really is true. There's not much. Somebody who's an expert photographer can use, you know, a a quote-unquote pro app 
like Halide, you know, which is yeah. a great, great iPhone camera app. And you can shoot raw instead of JPEG. And then by shooting raw, you, you, you can get more in post than you could with the JPEG. Um, and, you know, if you truly understand, you know, what the effect that different shutter speeds have on an image or exposure times, uh, you know, or ISO or whatever, there's some things you can adjust in some of these apps. But for the most part, though, the pros, they, they might know more about that, but they're not really using any kind of even software tools that aren't accessible to everybody. Um, so, like, the, the inspiration level on these is super high to me. As opposed to, say, like a National Geographic photo contest yeah. where they really are shot from, like, the four corners of the globe. Uh, I was also, like, surprised that Apple didn't pan... Like, they, it, this isn't an Apple pandering because there's no, like, oh, look, this is using the new depth effect from our iPhone no. 10R. You know, like, there's not a single portrait. They're, they're not the usual, oh, a picture of a pet, a picture of a face, someone sitting on a corner. You know, it, they really went for different looking stuff. Well, it's funny you would bring that up. I actually noticed looking at the winners that... Um, so, promotionally, Apple has spent a lot of time last two years talking about the portrait effect, which is yeah. about uh, blurring the background artificially, you know, through, you know, to create though the look, the quote unquote bokeh uh, effect of a shallow depth of field where the subject is in focus and the background is out of focus. And it's, why a did lovely... you bokeh Jacob? Why do you right. hate Jacob? I mean, it's everywhere. <laughs> it is. It, that's a funny ad. It, and it it's is, great. It's terrific. Yeah. It's, if you haven't seen it, it's a, couple of i think it's i think they're all women it's a bunch of moms yeah. are talking and the one mom has taken a photo of the other mom's child and it's a portrait photo and and, and the other woman's child is in the background and she's why did you bokeh my child and she says i would never bokeh, bokeh jeff why do you yeah why do you hate jacob what kind of person does that it's really funny though to see that it, it, i just never expected i've known the word bokeh for a long time as like i said as an amateur photo enthusiast i never expected to see it in a mainstream ad you know it, it on primetime tv uh but it's entered Being the vernacular over, yeah. <laughs> um i i actually think it's interesting how many of these winning images actually have the opposite they have yeah. a truly uh, infinite depth of of field you know that there's a f foreground subject and a background that are both in focus um Here's this one. There's a one of the winning photos by Elizabeth Scarrett here in the I'm US. just looking at it now. Yeah. yeah, with an iPhone 8 Plus, so it's another older phone, but it's a portrait of I guess her daughter um, up close to the camera. With uh, is that El Capitan in the background? It might be. I'm not good with the mountains. But I don't. Yeah, know. there's mountains behind her, and, yeah. and let's just say it's El Capitan, right? Yeah. But it's you know the mountain is in focus. The clouds, it, you know literally tens of miles away are in focus. And of course the girl, little girl is in perfect focus, including, yeah. you know, individual strands of her hair. Um, yeah, I would say that it's funny how many of these winners actually have a really deep depth of field. And but, she uses contrast against the trees and, and the brightness of the grass to, yeah. to make the separation, not, not the blur effect. Yeah. It's, that's, it's a really good photo. Yeah. <laughs> and again, really hard to believe it's taken with a cell phone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Really, it's it's 
inspiring. And they had a bunch of photographer judges, but they also had like Phil Schiller, Cayenne Duran, Sebastian right. Marinomes. They had a bunch of Apple, like people from the Apple marketing and the camera teams judging. Right. So you Cayenne had a Durant, wide range. You, if you, that's a name that might ring a bell. She was actually on stage for the first time yeah. at the introduction of the uh, iPhone, this year's iPhones in September. Uh, the A12 segment. Yeah, she yeah she had the segment, which was really I think one of the toughest parts was explaining the how does the A twelve um, AI stuff make photography better, which is could easily have gotten out into the weeds and instead was a really succinct oh okay I get it we're making better images not just through lenses and sensors it it really is you know. I, I, billions it's like billions yep. of computational decisions made for each shot instantaneously as you shoot it it was a really and good i know segment. people have said this before but it's worth pointing like i've i've spoken to a lot of companies where the marketing people are essentially sales people they're, they're like a used car salesman and they have no idea how the technology works or anything behind it they just want you to buy it and apple's team is very different. They, most of them have engineering degrees. They all are incredibly smart and they know how it works literally down to the silicon. And you see that, you know, when they do present on stage. And also, uh, Sebastian, if people don't know Sebastian, he's been doing State of the Union for the last couple of years. Yeah. Also very, very smart. Uh, yeah. He runs the camera team now, he used to be vice president of software at QNX uh, previously. These are all real serious people. Yeah. Yeah. I think my favorite, here's I picked my favorite. I'm going to ask you yours. Uh, they're all good. My favorite, though, is Darren So's. He's from Singapore, yeah. and it's a reflection of like a, I'm guessing like an apartment building. It's hard to say, some kind of high rise in a puddle, and it. I don't know what I don't. It's so. It's a very obvious. I think is it Phil Schiller? Yeah, Phil Schiller's comments on this one. He was one of the judges. It's a reflection that looks like a painting. I mean, and yeah. it's the best way to say it. But it it looks so much like a painting. It's stunning, and I think the. I think it would be a great photo anyway, but there's a bird that's captured in the sky that in like just the perfect location that re really makes it. It's just it's such a compelling image. It, yeah. It, it And just great color. And uh, it's probably when you look favorite. at it every time you see so like you see the building and you look again, you notice the puddle and you look again, you notice the different like the layers of the yeah. puddle. It's, it's just so many depths to it. So much depth to it. Yeah. What's your favorite? Uh, I like, I don't know if it's Dina or Dinah, uh, Alfasi from Israel. And she just got this perfect mm -hmm. frame of like this desolate sidewalk with a little tiny leaf in the corner, but then this perfect heart shaped puddle, which is this deep blue and a person walking again, everything is just perfectly framed in that yeah. instant with like the, the world behind them, but you're not part of it. But maybe if you follow them, you could be, and yeah. it's just like, it's, it's mystery and evocative at the same time, mysterious yeah. and evocative. Yeah, I'm. I'm also. It's like iPhone it, ten, by the way. iPhone ten. Uh, it's fascinating too because until I noticed the leaf, I was even unsure unsure of the scale. Yeah, like I kind of thought it was a relatively small puddle, but I wasn't sure. It. I don't know. It's a great image too. They're all. They're yeah. all, you know unsurprising. And then you realize right? the person walking is upside down to make them look right side up in the puzzle in right. the puddle, and you know it's again many layers of. of perception yeah it's really cool and, and I'm, I'm shocker the 10 best photos in this very highly promoted iphone care photo contest are all amazing images yep <laughs> but they really are and it's yeah. super super inspiring knowing that i'm walking around every waking moment of my life <laughs> with a camera as good or better than what was yep. used to take every one of these images <laughs> so 
Thank you for making me feel like a terrible, incompetent <laughs> photographer, Apple. <laughs> yeah. And what I love about it still is it like, you know, people argue about which camera is the best, but you really, for just taking a camera out of your pocket and taking a shot and not having to worry about the app taking forever to launch or figuring out which of 19 different AI modes you want to engage for the, like, just take it out of your pocket, take a shot and odds are you're going to get a, a really useful photo. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I don't know. It's a, for as depressing as our opening segment was on the yeah. state of privacy in the industry, it's it it's <laughs> it's super exciting to me how amazing the cameras we have with us at all times are. Uh, you know, including video. Uh, all right, next segment. How about we talk about folding phones? Yeah, sure. That'd be awesome. <laughs> so we have two folding phones now. We had, I think we, I think I spoke about it with Glenn Fleischman in last week's episode, the, the uh, Samsung Galaxy Fold, yep. very <laughs> intriguingly named. Um, From the people who brought you the Samsung Galaxy Circle in previous years. This was, this was, <laughs> this was introduced at Samsung's uh, quote unquote unpacked event uh, like a week and a half ago in San Francisco at the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium. Uh, and now this week at the what's the name of the show in Barcelona? Uh, Mobile World Congress MWC. Mobile, MWC Mobile World Congress is a big. Uh, every company other than Samsung and Apple <laughs> introduced their phones at MWC, um, and Huawei unveiled their Mate X. Is it the Mate X or Mate Ten? I don't. It's spelled it's with the Mate X. X. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to use, but yeah, it's the Mate X. All right, their folding phone. Uh, but before I get to them, let me actually take a moment here on an aside. Here's something I didn't know. I think I, I forget if this was on the show or something I wrote about. I think it was when I wrote about Samsung's phone and I had a little parenthetical wondering why the hell did they call everything the galaxy, whatever, because it's yeah. just adding an extra word. Every single thing they unveiled Samsung unveiled is the Samsung galaxy blank. The phones are the galaxy S 10 and S 10 plus. The earbuds are the Samsung Galaxy Buds, I think they're calling them. Yeah. Why not just the Samsung Buds? Why not? Why, why do they insert Galaxy into all of it? Um, and the one, one answer I got from people is that Samsung is such a bizarre conglomerate yeah. that they, you know, they make washing machines and refrigerators and, and all of these other various things that the Galaxy thing is a way to say this is our computer stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if they come out with a galaxy refrigerator, frankly. <laughs> it's um, a bunch of different companies that all license the name Samsung and are owned by, to a certain percentage by the Samsung company, I believe. Not, not completely owned all the time, but partially owned at least. The more interesting angle, and this is news to me, is that in Japan, um, uh, Korean brands are so frowned upon and looked upon with such disdain that and at least Samsung in particular that Samsung doesn't use the Samsung brand in Japan. When you buy a Samsung phone in Japan, it's just called like the Galaxy S10 and it doesn't say Samsung on the back, so they it's like a different SKU. It doesn't have that Samsung logo on it. And it's like Datsun it, before Nissan. Yeah, it's it's really wild. A couple couple of readers and listeners or whatever, you know, but uh who live in Japan sent me pictures and stuff of like, and the other thing too, is Japan is still a very carrier centric mm -hmm. dominated country. Um, 
probably not that different in the U.S. Like in Europe, there's a lot of places where the your carrier is just an afterthought and you can just pop, you know, people just pop in SIMs and nobody even really, you know, you can, people change carriers a lot freer and, and buy their phones independent of the, their carrier service. But Japan, it's still very dominated by the carriers. Um, but you know, somebody had a photo, I forget which one of the Japanese, maybe Docomo, I think, but one of their stores and like the Samsung kiosk doesn't say Samsung anywhere. It's just all Galaxy. So they use that Galaxy brand so that they don't have to say Samsung. <laughs> I, I really was blown away by it. It's so yeah. it's kind of bizarre because I've always been hung up on the weird way that Samsung loves to put their logo so big. It's it's not even a good logo. I mean, it's and they spend just, billions on putting it everywhere. Right, and that of all the things I always used to say, they copied so much from the iPhone, and the one thing they couldn't couldn't bring themselves to copy was the humility of not putting your logo on the front of the phone. They like, they kept that Samsung thing on the front of the phone until they ran out of front, right? Until there was no more front. And then they started putting it on the back, but not in Japan, in Japan, yeah. it's galaxy. So uh, that, there's my aside on that. And uh, so I guess that means they're stuck in the rest of the world calling everything Samsung galaxy, blah, blah, blah. Ah oh, man. Uh, anyway, we got the Huawei Mate X, and yep. we've got the Samsung Galaxy Fold, and it's a fascinating one-two punch because they literally fold <laughs> the opposite way. Yep. They're they're actually you know fundamentally an and an Audi TM. Fundamentally, the same basic idea. You have a cell phone sized smartphone that unfolds to a squarish tablet sized device. But because the one's an Innie and one's an Audi, it's two very different takes on it. Neither one of them is <laughs> practically priced. The The Samsung Galaxy Fold starts at uh, $1,980. And yeah. I think the Mate X is 2,300 euros, which I, yeah. did the, I did the calculation. At, at least as of a day or two ago, that was $2,600. Yeah. Which you can't get. In, like You'll have to import it because you can't buy it in the U.S. Right. Because Huawei has yeah. a very uh, strange relationship in the, with the United States. Um, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's funny being the iPhone enthusiast and now being the one laughing at the prices <laughs> of right. other people's phones. Um, at least it's I not do. Samsung expensive as everything every Apple person can say now. Yeah, and you know, but clearly it, it would be different though if the Samsung Galaxy S10 were two thousand dollars because yes. clearly the S10 and S10 Plus and the S10e those three phones are the ones that are meant to they they are Samsung's flagship yep. phones for twenty nineteen. This folding thing is not meant to sell in huge quantities. No, and that's I, part I, of the reason why it's priced that because it's a small batch and they have to sort of spread out the cost of running it amongst right. the units and right. early adopters will pay a lot because they're early adopters. I wonder, you know, I mean, it certainly is a, it, there's no mistaking it as a new phone, right? I mean, yeah. it is definite weird, you know, if you want somebody, if you want people to know that you have a very expensive new phone, that's, these are the ones to get. Um, Let me just unfold my phone and give you that answer. I, I personally, I'm intrigued, you know, enough that it's a topic on the show and I've linked to them both and, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm following along, but I'm also convinced that neither one of these 
really should be considered more than a, a shipping prototype. I should it, mention it, there was a third one there that got much less attention, LG, because they hadn't mm. made a folding phone. They made a case with a second display that you put your phone in, and then it essentially becomes a folding phone. And the case is really expensive because it has that second display in it. But then there must be a gap or something, right? Yes. There's like a, a hinge in the middle. Hmm. So it's two discrete screens. Uh, you know, it raises some questions. So with Samsung's any design where the the folding display folds in on itself and then yeah. you have they, – they put an extra display, therefore, on the outside so there'd be something you can see while the phone is folded. And a small one with these huge like inch and a half bezels on top and bottom too. Absolutely huge. Yeah. I mean almost hard to believe chin and forehead bezels. Like yes. not like, oh my god, we're like back to the old – Like Frankenstein's monster chin and forehead bottom. Right. Not like the old – you know, iPhones before the iPhone 10 yeah. and forehead, we're talking way, way bigger, like unlike anything you've ever seen. It's, yeah. you know, you know, it, it, <laughs> it's probably the lowest, you know, what's the the term? The screen, screen, screen to, to bezel, bezel ratio, screen to bezel ratio. It's got to be the highest since like, uh, flip phones you and know, i can't tell if it's like components forced them to do that because it was just they just couldn't bury them under the screen or they thought it was so thick they needed to make the screen fall, smaller for you to be able to use it one i don't know what the whether it was which wouldn't dictated the other well case. and how much of it's just price that you know yeah. the bigger the display i mean clearly the idea with the samsung one of of their concept is that 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 small outer display in folded mode is really only meant for very quick casual use. In other words, you know, Oh, you have a notification. Who's it from? Yeah. Oh, my phone is somebody's calling me. Who is it? Um, I'm walking around. I can't stop and open it. I just want to get a couple quick things done. Yeah. I, I, I don't even know if the camera works in that mode. Like me, I don't even know if you, you know, yeah, there's all there's a whole series of cameras. That's the other thing is it's got a whole series of cameras on the back, and then they have the biggest notch. Like it's so big, it's like a pirate patch right. on the inside for a whole bunch of internal cameras too. Um, it's clearly the idea though is that anytime you're actually doing anything, you're going to take the phone and open it up yeah. and, and unfold it. But it's it's at a fundamental level, I think that the Huawei Audi design is is better because it there is no extra screen. Right. Yeah. It's just one screen and you only use half of it when you're in phone mode. It, you know, it seems less wasteful. It's inelegant yeah. to have an extra screen. Yeah, it's it's more efficient, but less protected because now that plastic screen, because there's no folding Gorilla Glass yet, is just always exposed to the outside world. In in theory, you know, and I understand why nobody's really pulled this off, and I understand why Apple hasn't done it, you know. But in theory, it's wasteful that we even have front-facing cameras. I mean, in yeah. theory, it would be nice if there was some way that you could have one camera and then have it rotate so that whether, you know, you're facing the, the phone, or, you know, taking a picture of yourself or taking a picture away from the phone, it would be the same camera, Um you know, and in the same way, it's wasteful to have a second display that you only use when the phone is in yep. a secondary mode. I get it, though, that, you know, they wanted to have it fold in and of itself. I don't know. Yeah, they wanted to make a book. And Huawei is as that, that it has one camera system and it sort of does a pass through when you want to take yeah. uh, selfies or LCs. Well, and yeah, I, I, I wasn't sure how they did that. Um, neither of these seems super compelling to me, though. Uh, and there's a, clearly a crease 
on the uh, the Huawei one. Like they're, both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, both of them have it bad. Like you think, like how do you how would you do this? Would not have it some kind of crease, and it, the answer is well, you don't. There, it's not. There is no magic way that this. You know, and maybe someday we'll get there. You know, but as of now, there is, you know, there's definitely a crease in the middle. And that's on day one. Like these are the, the demo units. You don't. Like, it's hard to imagine what it's going to look like a month, two months, a year in. Right. Yeah. And well, there's a real durability question with both yeah. of these, um, because especially with the Huawei, where where the main display is on the outside at all times, and yeah, I don't know how, what percentage of people use their phone with no case i suspect it's you know I, i've talked about this before i, I would guess it's a 10 percent or fewer um and if you put a screen protector on does that crease now as well i mean like the whole thing and how would you is, do it yeah how would you do a screen yeah. protector uh and even you know and i tend not to use a case so i'm you know yeah. i'm in that group that mostly but I, i'm also always as somebody who doesn't use a case very cognizant of which side of my phone is yep. a display and which is not <laughs> And if I'm ever setting it down on a surface, I tend to set it with the display up, you know, so that yeah. it doesn't get scratched by something that might be on the table or surface. Um, how do you do that when both sides are display? You know, there is no lucky side to drop it on or to get a scratch on. You have to and, put it in. Yep, and combine that with the fact that both of these, because glass isn't yet yep. flexible, uh, they're both plastic screens, not glass. And possibly, therefore, more scratchable. Oh, absolutely. Definitely more scratchable. You're going to have to put it in an iPod sock the minute you close it. Right. It's, you know, how, so I don't know. I, I'm not sure the foldable phones will ever be a thing for for some reasons, including durability and the fact that people want to put them in cases, you know. And if people want to put their $750 phones in a protective case which is a total sensible totally sensible thing to do and way to think about it it's you know maybe i'm the idiot for not putting my phones in cases most of the time i'll tell you what if it's two thousand dollars it's only going to increase their desire to put it in a case and if the design of the phone is that well you can't put it in a case because the whole gimmick is it unfolds i'm not sure that appeals to a lot of people and i don't know how you get around that how do you design a phone that can fold whether it's in any or an audi and still be able to put it in a protective case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, this, uh, I remember when I was at CES and they introduced the Galaxy Note for the first time and they put it on every table in this room that we went into and we all picked them up and looked at them and the screens were horrible because no one really had good screen tech. I mean, there's one of the reasons Apple made the, you know, one of the reasons Apple made the phone smaller was so you could hit it, but also that was literally the biggest size they could make the screen back then to a quality standard that they were found acceptable. But Samsung's like, they just stretched it out and it did not look good and the whole phone was deeply compromised. But flash forward a few years and we have really good big phones now and that's a much easier problem set to solve for than the foldable phones yeah. so I, I love the idea i love the idea of having one thing that's my phone that can open up into a tablet i think it's a brilliant idea it has not been realized yet to say no. to say it like easily but and if it can never be realized well i will never buy one of them but i hold out hope you know apple um i heard about apple experimenting with the stuff i think back in the iphone 4s days and obviously they're not happy with anything because they haven't shipped anything yet they they have the the resources and smarts to to basically prototype anything that they want as often as they want so my guess is you know that they don't find this technology acceptable yet either i don't know if they ever will um 
but it, it is a compelling idea to have that one thing that you can just like almost like the Star Trek flip yeah. thing. It's just a very not people have been folding wallets and books for millennia. It's something we're very used to. Well, the the to me the canonical sci-fi uh, prototype for this are the the devices in Westworld. I, th- yes. I mentioned this last week with Glenn, but you know Westworld has these. Um, the what's the name of the company? Uh, uh, I don't know. Basic idea of Westworld for those who aren't familiar is that it's, it's like a at some point unnamed point in the somewhat near future. There's a theme park you can go to yeah. where it's you're just you get put into a cowboy outfit and you're you know it's like the real the wild west come to life and you just get to be a, a it's an old Michael Crichton movie right. that they remade for TV. Right. And it's really good. It's on HBO. Yeah. I really enjoy it tremendously. But the employees of the theme park use these um, tablet computers that fold to be, you know, like cell phone sized and are completely usable, folded or unfolded. So you can, you know, put it in a pocket, folded, take it out and use it if you just want to use it. But then you can unfold it. And they're, you know, maybe like the thickness of a credit card. Yeah. Um, so they're very, very thin, uh, you know, just, you know, that, that, that future dream of just having a a device that is just a screen, no thicker than the screen and everything is just in there. Um, and they look great. It's, they do a great job with the user interface. I I guess if there's anything I, I would gripe about it, it seems to me like they make the user interface too small. Yeah. I think that if you actually saw that much information density, and a device, it would be untouchable. Like it wouldn't be yep. it's unsuited to touch. But you know, it's the sort of thing where it makes it look more sci-fi to have more information on. So I, I, I would bet that they're fully aware that it's actually an un, unusable for touch information density, but looks cool. So looks cooler. So therefore, they they went with that direction. But anyway, they fo- they fold and unfold exactly the way in theory one would want their fold phone to fold and unfold so you can get a tablet size computer whenever you need it and use a phone size thing when you don't yeah if xiaomi had this they haven't actually shown the phone off yet but their ceo was using a phone that was a tablet and you fold both the left and the right side in behind it and that becomes your phone so they're, hmm. they're always experimenting with all sorts of crazy stuff it is an interesting idea would you are these things are they phones that unfold or are they tablets that fold yeah, up that fold right yeah, and it also speaks to sort of the problems these companies are dealing with where android is a lot better for phones than it is for tablets i yeah. mean i don't i don't even think that's i think even android proponents would agree with that that android however much you might like it as your phone operating system it's never really done a great job on tablets you know and even google seems to acknowledge that by moving more towards chrome as the os for tablet their tablet sized devices than android but if android isn't good at being a tablet then what's the point of having a phone that opens up to tablet size yeah yeah absolutely you know in theory ios would be a lot better at this than than android I was thinking about too because you have the size the size classes already, so you you just have a regular size class. And when it opens up, it takes on. Uh, sorry, you have the compact size class. It opens up, becomes a regular size class with the same kind of uh, mechanics that you have in iOS and iPad apps, and you already yeah. have all those universal binaries. So their software story, at least, is I think much cleaner at this point. Yeah, 
I don't know. I, I don't think either of these are going to be, I don't think we're Mike. My, my question is, will they be popular enough that you'll actually maybe see one this year? Like, will somebody, will I get an email from somebody by the end of the year and say, Hey, I actually saw somebody with the galaxy fold, you know, at the mall and wherever Peoria. I don't know. Like, I don't even know if that, if these things are realistic, real, real products enough that we're even going to see them, let alone be using them. Yeah, I think right now, again, these are like, uh, they, uh, unlike Apple, Apple keeps their prototypes and their shame internal. These companies are very happy to <laughs> right. sort of put them in public. And I think it benefits Apple, too, because, you know, Apple got to watch 10 years of smartphones of Blackberries and Palms and Windows Mobile and figure out what problems they had and how Apple could solve them. Same thing with tablet PC, yeah. same thing with the different watch brands. And this, everyone's going to watch these. They'll have the same discussions that we have. And if you can solve a problem, you can make a better product, then they'll go. And if they're just flawed by nature, then and there'll be no go. Well, flex, the idea of flexible displays is fascinating because yeah. we've, you know, from the CRT until very until very recently, displays were anything but flexible. They were completely inflexible. <laughs> Typically, would would crack very easily if you tried to flex them. Um, uh, what you know, Apple's take on this, and you know, one of the first ways that these flexible OLEDs have been used in, in Samsung's case is to fold a little bit of the screen over the side of the display. Yeah. Uh, and they had some weird UI experiments where they would show notifications in that area, yeah. you know, sort of like what do they call them? Chirons, Chirons, like on yeah. TV, you know, like a little, like the little ticker tape thing at the bottom of CNN or MSNBC or ESPN. It was like putting a little colored note sticker on the outside of your book. Right. Uh, <laughs> I've never found that very compelling. It kind yeah. of looks cool because it's literally edge to edge and there's no bezel at all on the side. So it looks good in a product product photograph, but I've never understood the point of having it because you can't hold the phone without covering up that part of it. Uh, Apple obviously isn't impressed um, with that design, but the one area where Apple has used flexible displays so far is in the iPhone 10 and now the 10s and 10s max where they use the flexible nature of the OLED to curve the display at the, I think it's just the top and bottom yeah. under, but you don't, it's only to make, they're, they're using the, the, the flexible nature of OLED to make the iPhone 10 and 10 S displays go, you know, from the top to bottom with no chin or forehead or minimal, minimal bezel. That's the same as it is on the sides. The flexible part is completely hidden from view, so you don't see it as flex. Yeah. It's just that that's the implementation detail of how they made it get look like it goes all the way from the top and bottom. So, so I think instead of plugging into the module underneath it, forcing a chin, it can go. Sorry, on the bottom of it, it goes underneath it, not therefore hiding the chin. There. Well, relieving them of the responsibility of making the chin area. Right. Ninety. Well over ninety nine percent of all iPhone ten owners have no idea that they're using a, a display that is flexed under the yeah. bottom and top because it doesn't look like it at all. Like, yeah, totally. It's, it's fascinating. And such a difference to me that Apple, you know, is using this expensive state of the art, flexible screen technology in a way that completely hides the fa- fact that it's flexible at all. Like an implementation detail. <laughs> right. But that to me is so super Apple-y. Whereas, yep. whereas like the initial Samsung thing was, look at this, it's flexible. Look, it bends around the side. Like it couldn't be more in your face that, hey, this is a flexible display. It goes back to that old Steve Jobs um, 
speech when you say that you, we never want to look at a technology and figure out how to use it. We want to figure out a product and then find the technology that enables it. I have. And a they f- wanted. To- yep. That's it's such a great quote. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like they never looked at NFC and said, hey, we ought to put this radio in. They're like, we need Apple Pay. What component? It's not a chipset. It's a feature set for them. Uh, I had a friend who until recently worked at Apple and and his remark upon seeing the, I think the first of the, I think it was the Samsung one. He goes, that's a total, uh, he just said the same thing. That's a total Steve Jobs. That's a technology, not a product. Yeah. Like, somebody <laughs> at Samsung, <laughs> somebody at Samsung was like, "Look, we could do this," and then they said, "Okay, build a phone that does that." Whereas nobody would really think, "Hey, let's build a display with a big crease in the middle." <laughs> like I like I went to CES this year and I saw the fruit roll up TV from from LG, and at first I thought this is a brilliant idea because it'll just roll up to fit whatever aspect ratio of the content you want to watch. Like if it's a sixteen by mm. nine show, it'll go to sixteen by nine. But if it's you know if you're if you're watching Lawrence of Arabia, it'll give you like this beautiful. No, you'll never have to worry about bars or anything again. And they're like, nope, it's got two modes: partially up for for alarm clock, all the way up for TV. That's it. Like well, then why use the technology? Well. I... I didn't think about I, I that one. I'm a little bit more. I was actually going to bring that up. I actually feel like that that LG rollable TV. It's it, it's interesting to me if you're if if the nature of the room you want to put it in is such that you don't want a TV up all the time. Sure. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I like. I'm I'm not a hide the TV person. I'm I'm a look. I, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. It's, it's, if you had a penthouse overlooking the city and you didn't want it to obstruct your view until you wanted to watch the game. Right. And one time, many years ago, I got an upgrade at Bellagio in Vegas and got a room that had a TV at the foot of the bed. Yeah. Um, and you hit a button and it would it would rise out. And apparently Oprah Winfrey's had one of these for a long time. My wife was very excited about it. Uh, It's very cool. But it really, it it required a TV size box at the foot of the bed. (laughs) Because it would, you know, the TV didn't, there was a TV that was there all the time. It just would go into this box and then you'd hit a button and it would pop out of the box so you could see it. Uh, in a case like that, the LG thing would be way more elegant, you know, where it yeah. folds up into a little, little tiny box. It doesn't have to, you know, um, I don't know. I, I, I'm sure we'll see it and I'm seeing them in advertising contexts all over the place, you know, that there's foldable displays that people are putting up yeah. along the sides of buildings and stuff like that. I mean, it's clearly well, the, the future. Yes. You went in there, the, the display is just curved up. Uh, every side like you were you even saw that in the samsung event it looked like almost like a celtic cross they had displays folded around yeah i think it's i think the initial uses that make a lot of sense are in industrial uh, maybe that's the wrong word but you know uh, installations you know like lobby like if you're going to use a display big displays to decorate the lobby of your fancy new hotel using flexible displays would be way cooler like it would be like if you have circular columns in your building it would be kind of amazing to make a dis- a seamless display that wraps around the column in a you know in a cylinder a cylindrical display there's all sorts of ways that uh, flexible displays could look cool but i think in consumer technology we haven't seen anything yet that's really compelling yeah no agreed and again it is an interesting difference with apple where apple isn't isn't going to show a 
cruddy flexible phone that they don't want anybody to actually yeah. buy yet just so they can say first yeah they've, yeah they ne- first is not on there in, in their vocabulary right I, you could almost see it at samsung's event that it's like the the consumer technology equivalent of being in the youtube comments and writing first <laughs> And, and Huawei did the same thing first. Right. And like, we just saw the Samsung one last week, but okay. Right. And it was a Royale Flex Pi at CES, which was just <laughs> horrible. I mean, they, they're all making these now. Which was also <laughs> funny because there were a bunch of people who said only Samsung could make this. There's, they're so far ahead. They've got years and years of lead. No one else can make this full. And then it's like eight of them showed up. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that there was a note, speaking of Goldman Sachs, where Goldman Sachs had a note saying that, you know... It, I think it was overblown, the reaction. I think if yeah. you actually read the note, it, it was just if, you know, and I think that if needs to be in all caps, <laughs> bold, <laughs> and italics, if foldable phones become a thing, Samsung might have a leg up, a serious leg up on Apple because Samsung produces their own screen technology and Apple is a, a buyer of screen technology made by others. Uh, and I think that's actually a valid point. I think that, yeah. you know... Well, we see that now with the iPhone ten and ten S that Samsung just charges them a fortune for those displays. Right, and I don't at, at this point nobody else can make them. Nobody else is making yeah. an OLED that meets Apple's exacting demands for you know color accuracy and etc. Yeah. etc. It is interesting though. There is you know and and you see it with Samsung's devices and they're in a weird place. But to some degrees, it's interesting that samsung's really the only other company that that can say that they follow the tim cook mantra of owning and controlling the core technologies of their devices i mean samsung can do their own cpus and they do make their own displays um i mean huawei is like that they make the kirin processor they even make the cell phone towers that it runs off of but they're just not going to be sold in the US at no. any point. <laughs> um all right let me take a break and thank our third Final sponsor of the episode, it is our good friends at Squarespace. I talk about Squarespace at least every other episode. They are one of the most long-running sponsors of this show. The reason why is because people keep signing up to build new websites or update old websites and move them to a new platform on Squarespace using the code from the show. Uh, It's really a great service and it does everything you need a web hosting provider to offer from domain name registration to templates dozens and dozens of professionally designed templates in a variety of styles uh, that scale from everything from phones to big desktop displays responsively Uh, all of them customizable so that you can make them your own and Put your own brand on it and not have it look like a cookie cutter site like oh that's another squarespace site using the blank template or something like that you visit sites every single day i guarantee it that are built on squarespace and you have no idea because squarespace is so popular and it's so customizable and so easy to make it your own and put your own brand for your company or yourself or whatever it is you're making a website for um and just beautiful and everything from uh, you want to have a blog, you want to have a podcast, you want to do something, you want to have a, a store where you sell stuff and do e-commerce. All of that stuff is all built in to the Squarespace platform. And you just do it all from designing the site to checking the analytics and seeing who's visiting your site and what 
parts of the site people are using to actually updating the site and posting things like blog entries or adding items to your store. All of it. You do it all through Squarespace. Check them out next time you need to build a website or next time you take an old website and want to update it to a new platform. Where do you go? Go to squarespace.com. And remember this code, TALKSHOW, at checkout when you do buy after you use up your free, free, uh, free trial period. You get 10% off. And you can do that for prepaying up to a full year in advance. Save 10%. That's the code, TALKSHOW. No the, just TALKSHOW. Go to squarespace.com slash TALKSHOW and you can get started today. Uh, what else is on our agenda, Renee? Um, double, uh, God, secret lives of Facebook moderators in America. This was a great story. I still haven't linked to it from Daring Fireball because it, it was it really uh, a great yeah. story by Casey Newton at The Verge. Uh, really, want, probably the most compelling thing I've read all week. Uh, yeah. Talking about this company that is sort of like a contractor for Facebook to do moderation here in the U.S. So it's not Facebook employees. It's, uh, what's the name of this company here? Cognizant. C-O-G-N-I-C-A-N-T. They have an office in, I guess, somewhere in Arizona. And people come in, you get this job. And, uh, oh, it sounds, it's almost dystopian. I mean, maybe I should take out the word almost. It's, it's dystopian. And apparently that is not like, like one of the bragging points that they make is that it's, you know, they have windows and it's like a nice, it's not some dank basement. So maybe that aspect of it isn't, isn't dystopic, uh, dystopian. I forget the word. Um, but in terms of what it's like to work there, it is, yeah. it's like you check in. You have to leave your phone. You can't have any paper or pencils because they don't want people like uh, writing down. Like the, Casey. <laughs> right. They don't want people writing down the names of the people involved in the things that they're doing. They micromanage your bathroom breaks. Yeah. Uh, and you're expected to go through hundreds of disputed, flagged things on Facebook every day, whether it's, you know, identifying whether somebody's, uh, rant is racist or whether there's a, you know, somebody posts, they post just the worst stuff you can imagine videos of people being killed by drones in, in the middle East. And, and obviously it's, I'm sure tons of pornographic stuff. Uh, yeah. Um, and you just have to go through hundreds of these things and they um, get in big trouble if you're, you know, they audit, you know, a couple of dozen of your everybody's things a week. And if yours don't match up with what they expect them to, you get in trouble. Um, there's not much money in this. It seems like the, what do they only pay like $28,000 a year for a full-time employee. Uh, yeah, and it really they pay seems nothing and they just totally, and it sounds like these people are being destroyed like emotionally psychically in every way possible right because for 40 hours a week every week they are just looking at nothing but the worst i mean that's you know the stuff that's innocuous isn't isn't getting flagged for moderation so it's just 40 hours a day of evaluating the worst stuff posted to facebook yeah let's talk about one woman in the beginning who's just watching people getting murdered yeah yeah and she had like a panic attack and and you know it you know who can blame her i mean it's it's uh, you know 
people aren't most people aren't hooked up to consume stuff like that yeah it's literally soul crushing yeah it's like snuff films and stuff it's really crazy uh facebook (laughs) yeah it's player of the year well you've mentioned this before it's just like they, they they it's it's not a it's not a company that normal people work at it's just not I, you know, one of the things that was raised, I mean, and, you know, one of the things that's a little morally questionable is the, the relationship Facebook has with these moderation companies like this, that they're, they're keeping this at arm's reach and they're not making them full-time. They're not making them Facebook employees. They're employees of a company called Cognizant and they have a contract with Facebook. To me, there's a lack of ownership there, you know, that uh, they should be full-time Facebook employees. You know, this is, this is Facebook's problem. This is the nature of their platform. Uh, farming this out and and you know to another company is uh, uh, there's a certain lack of. I'm not surprised that that's how they do it, but there's a it 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 it, it seems like it's brushing it aside. Like this is to be clear, there was a, an expose a couple of weeks ago about uh, contract workers in Silicon Valley, and it was Apple and Google and all the big companies, and they were just none of them were treated as well as employees would be treated. They were all micromanaged. They all yeah. hated their jobs, and it's just not a good culture. And it seems to be endemic in the in in the area. But when you're dealing with material like this, it seems to be especially like verifying addresses for Apple or Google on, on a Maps app. You get, that's probably really boring work. But these people are, again, watching the absolute worst of humanity over and over again for nothing. Yeah, or not much. Um, And it helps obscure things like, you know, what's the average salary of an employee at Facebook? Yeah. When all of these people making, here here it is, $28,800 per year to to evaluate this. And there's, you know, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of these people, uh, their low wages aren't bringing down the company-wide average salary employee at Facebook. You know, I saw yeah. some people in response to this saying, you know, and, and that uh, – and, and they're right. I'm not disagreeing at all that, that the problem is that these – this shows that uh, at least especially here in the U.S. That, that like mental health care isn't part of a lot of – even if you have health insurance, getting treated for the – emotional problems that might develop doing a job like this should be part of your healthcare. I don't disagree with that. I agree with it. Sure. But I feel like reading this article and coming away with the primary take that, Hey, something's busted in our, another aspect of our healthcare system that's busted is that these people aren't getting the mental health care they need after dealing with this job. I think you're whistling past the primary problem, which is that this platform is a cesspool. And yes. that they're, you know, I don't know what the answer is. You know, it obviously disband Facebook and shut it down isn't going to happen. But let's let everybody on the planet post whatever they want and share it to like-minded individuals is fundamentally a broken idea. You know, that the fund I, to me the fundamental idea of Facebook is broken. Like that's just, this is not a good idea. You know. And we're seeing it, you know, and I don't know what the answer is, but, and I'm not surprised in the least bit that it, it, that keeping it moderated to the degree that it is moderated requires tremendous man hours 
to identify and flag this stuff. And even so, they still are obviously struggling with the accuracy rate. You know, the article goes into the fact that these, you know, somebody, people from Facebook who actually are Facebook employees do these audits. And, you know, the, the, the goal is to have a 95% success rate. In other words, that, you know, if you have this job as a moderator, 19 out of 20 times, your assessment of this is acceptable, it should stay up, or this is unacceptable, we should take it down, should agree with the yeah. person at Facebook. Um, I'm not surprised at all that this is human-driven on both ends, not algorithmically driven. I, I don't, you know, AI just isn't there yet to do this. I mean, I'm sure there's some stuff that AI can flag, just like the way that uh, spam, email spam filters are largely, you know, almost entirely driven by software. Obviously, some stuff, like in the way that email can be filtered algorithmically can work, but deciding whether the content of a video is acceptable, it requires humans. And it just doesn't scale. It, the scale is impossible to understand how much content goes into these platforms, Facebook, YouTube, all of these every second, not just every day, but every second, it's unmanageable, let yeah. alone in total. Uh, you know, and it comes back, you mentioned that YouTube is, you know, to name the other giant in this, yeah. YouTube is in the midst of a couple of controversies. Um, but the one that I saw last week was one involving, uh, effectively pedophiles who are, who are looking at videos of young, mostly young girls yep. and the, the algorithmic angle on this and because i don't think it would take off is that once you get into this rabbit hole of these videos all of your suggested videos over on the right hand side of youtube are more of them yeah and it's awful 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 stuff but part of it you know part of it is the algorithm not flagging it you know being smart enough the algorithm is smart enough to to stitch these videos together and say okay if you like this you'll like that and they're right or correct, I should say, you know, in that these are related videos from the same people, but yeah. it's obviously wrong in the moral sense that these things should ever be allowed to propagate. And quite frankly, yeah. it ultimately gets to the bottom line of unmoderated comments are it never end well on the internet. Yes. You know, it, and it's awful to say it. And I realize that from a philosophical standpoint, a democratization of fruit, you know, free speech in theory, it's great that the internet allows everybody to have a voice, but in practice, there's enough awful people in the world that having an unmoderated forum, it never ends well. Well, you also remember like the early days of the internet. Like I, I used to run my own PHP nuke and WordPress and movable type installations. And there would always be a vulnerability where there were porn links put in or spam links yep. put in or malware links put in just on an automated basis. Yep. And I would end up destroying the comment system just because I couldn't keep up. And I was getting a trivial amount of comments. Yeah. I mean, one rule of thumb is that anything that can be abused will be abused. Yes. You know, and it it's inevitable, you know. So letters to the editor in your local printed newspaper never had spam because there was no, and I, I really doubt that there was much spam ever sent to the newspapers because you know, it's not going to get printed, right? There's yeah. somebody's reading these letters and deciding here's six letters about our recent news coverage and current events that, you know, show, you know, 
different perspectives and interesting points. Here's our six letters of the day. It's all human curated. So there was never any uh, impetus to abuse it. Whereas, you have to be delusional, not opportunistic to, to, right. to descend in nonsense. Right. Whereas we've created an automated system where anybody can fill out this text area form and hit a button <laughs> and whatever you typed in the field is going to show up at the bottom of this post. Uh, did not take long for that to be, to be, uh, yeah. taken advantage of. What was the six apart thing? Trackbacks. Yeah. Uh, which weren't comments. It was like, uh, it was never, it, they would put the link to what you blogged about it in right. the, I never the supported comments. it at daring fireball along the lines of why I never had comments at daring fireball is I just never wanted to, I saw the problem all along and never, you know, it, and again, it's like many things in life. There are trade-offs where if you don't have comments, you don't get the good comments either. And sometimes yeah. the comments are the best thing or somebody could make a point that it was better than the post itself, you know. Uh, like a Simcoe's comments are terrific, but I have no idea what he goes through in order to maintain that quality. Right. Well, it's human moderated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but trackbacks were trackbacks were like an automated way of linking an article or one post to another and saying like, oh, Renee posted about the Galaxy Fold and yeah. I'm responding to his post and I'd put a trackback in and then somehow there would be a link to my post at the bottom of your post because I sent the trackback. Well, it didn't take long for those to be abused. <laughs> they were all scraper. Yeah, like people who just scraped your content were all in your talkbacks. Right. Like you, it wasn't, you know, it was, you You needed to write like a script to do it because it was like a yeah. little, little simple API call. It wasn't just typing in a text area and hitting a button, but it was easily automated. And of course it was. I, I, I Here's my question. What is the point of YouTube comments? Uh, I, I guess they well. I guess there's a, a couple reasons why they do it, and it's the same reasons that there have always been comments on the web. One is to provide an open forum for discussion of the content. The other one is that when there are comments and people argue in them, you get way more page views because people come back not just to see the content again, but to see what the discussion around the content uh, is. And if they get into arguments, they come back again and again and again. Uh, do, do your videos get a lot of comments? They Today? get. Yeah, I mean, like they get way more comments than I've seen in blogs or or Twitter or anything in a long time because YouTube has an incredible and it's good and bad. Like there are like horrible comments that I delete. Uh, like I don't delete you know anyone arguing with me, but there are like some gross things that get posted in there, so I get rid of that. Um, but there there are tons of comments on a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, that is the one thing about YouTube comments is, is I never look. I'm I'm so anti comment that I don't even look. Like I watch a. Fair amount. Well, probably by most people's standards, I I watch very little YouTube, but I think I watch a fair amount of YouTube. I never even look at the comments. I, I mean, the only time I ever think about it is at the end of all these videos from you know serious YouTubers, where they always say, "If you like this video, hit the thumbs up button or yeah. whatever, and subscribe and leave a comment or whatever." They I hear them talking about it at the end of the video as I'm about to close the tab, but I never actually look. Uh, but when I do, when it occurs to me to look, I'm often blown away by how many comments there are. Yeah. Like there are, holy crap, there's a lot of comments, you know, like, and you look at somebody's video and it's, you know, supposedly has uh, 800,000 views and you're like, hmm, that's a lot of views. And then you're like, but then you look at the comments and you see how many there are, it's like 1200 comments or something. And you're like, well, maybe there are 800,000 views if 1200 people commented on it. 
the scale of YouTube is like when I started getting into it and then you look at someone like Shane Dawson who's been making videos for a while, but now we'll put up a 145 minute conspiracy theory video and it gets 20 to 40 million views or Desposito, I think just hit 6 billion views. It just, it dwarfs, I think anything else that's been built on like a content platform on the internet. Uh, yeah. At a technical level, it is amazing. And yeah. it's kind of interesting, you know, in in a historical idea, you know, that, I forget what Google paid for YouTube, but it's one of those, I think it was like a billion dollars, uh, yeah. whatever it was. It's, it's like up there with Facegram, fa- Facebook buying Instagram. I, I just yes. called them Facegram. That would be a good way to rebrand. <laughs> fair. Uh, Facebook buying Instagram for a billion dollars or, you know, you, you would have to, you know, the, the next reunification with Apple for a couple hundred yeah. million dollars has obviously turned out to be a great deal. Yeah, yeah, you'd, yeah. you'd have to, be, but like, what would have happened to YouTube? It's hard to imagine a future where a world where YouTube isn't part of Google, right? Like who else could have bought them and scaled them to be where they are? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a possibility they could have become their own Google. That they right. just their growth would have been so well managed that they would have become right. a company like a Google or a Facebook. Right, and that's always like, like you know, Snap never sold because they wanted to be the next Google, and who knows if that'll maybe not work out for them now. That's sort of the two choices you have. Like you know, like Google never sold; they were offered many times. They never sold either. Right. Yeah, I think that that's the most likely alternate universe is one where YouTube stuck independent and became one of the big six, you know, yeah. companies. Um, cause I just can't imagine who else could have done this or, or, or would have tolerated it. Right. Like you have to have a certain mindset to have a, we'll let people post whatever video they want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, no, it, it really is. And it, again, like, just like Facebook, it's, it's like an impossible problem. It really is. And it's, you know, eh. again, it's trade-offs. You know, there were a lot of problems with the world of print and, you know, this is mass yeah. media prior to the internet where a lot of voices were locked out of the conversation. And part of the reason why our society was so much less tolerant than it is now, not that we've, you know, gotten rid of our problems with intolerance, <laughs> Yeah. as evidenced by many of today's headlines. Uh, but the world is certainly inarguably a more tolerant place than it used to be in the internet and the, the, the providing voices and, and the allowing of publications that, you know, with, with other perspectives certainly is a great thing, but it's trade-offs because it's also yeah. allowed people who never would have gotten more of a crowd than what they could assemble raving at a street corner with a megaphone uh to have a very large audience well the, i mean like the the problem with youtube and facebook is their strength is their weakness so they are incredible recommendation engines so for example like if i listen to your post um wwdc podcast there's no sidebar that recommends snell's post wdc podcast mm. you know the, right. the connected guys there's just no way for me to listen to more of the same thing i can listen to more of right. your stuff but not other people's takes same thing if i read like, an article on daring fireball i don't also get you know dalrymple's take and, right. and marco's take but with youtube videos and with facebook they see what you want and they give you more of it and that amplifies content like you can get unbelievable suddenly you're you could look up and your content's got a million two million views out of nowhere but also you're being shown consistently conspiracy theory videos and real, real dumb stuff right along with it. So it amplifies both the good and the bad to an unbelievable degree. Yeah. 
Uh, I completely agree. Well, uh, lightning round. A few other things before we wrap up. There was this weird bug. Well, maybe it's a bug. I don't know what the hell this story is. Um, Where Google's home speakers, at some point in the last week, started showing a thing for Apple Music. And... Everybody thought it was like, <laughs> oh, they prematurely launched this before it was ready. Because, you know, I, I mean, it, it's nowhere near. It wouldn't be as surprising as the initial news that Apple Music is available yeah. on Amazon's Echo ones, you know, from earlier this year was. But now that that's out, well, if they're going to do it on Echo, if they could work out the terms with Google, presumably they would and will do it on Google, too. But yeah. now they're they're saying it was just a bug. <laughs> but it's it's a very strange bug. Yeah, I mean, it works on, it's been available for Android since launch. It doesn't surprise me. Apple's whole thing is that they want people who have family subscriptions to be able to listen to it everywhere because it makes it more valuable. Right. And they realize that there's a whole bunch of diversity in people's homes and, and ecosystems. So I wouldn't be surprised if it comes out. I don't, I don't tend to take Google statements on face value anyway. But then it, you know, it, and I don't blame Apple for it. You know, I, I think it kind of makes sense with the services push, you know, and I don't think... I do think I think the HomePod is is in many ways a misunderstood product because it isn't meant to compete with seventy dollars uh Echo and Google Dots or whatever they call theirs. Um it really is, you know, the best way to understand it is to listen to the way Apple describes it, and it really Mm -hmm. is supposed to be a nice three hundred and fifty dollar speaker system and the fact that it uses Siri as the interface is an implementation detail. I mean, yes, you can use it for stuff. I use it to turn off lights and raise the shades and lower the shades. I do use it that way, but it, it, Apple knew at $350 that it was, it was even in the best case scenario, not going to outsell $50 little puck hockey puck things. They, they don't have this one. before. They're very candid. They, they, it really was meant to be. You have an empty room. You want to put. You want to drop one thing in that you can put almost anywhere and will sound great in almost anywhere that you're in the room. And that's the problem it solves. And Siri is just the only way you control it because it's a speaker. Yeah, I can't help but think though that this bug wasn't really that like somebody, some rogue <laughs> individual at Google somehow put the apple music icon in there and just yeah. mocked it up like here's what it would look like if we had apple music and then accidentally shipped it presumably they're either it is either a done deal and is coming and unannounced or they're in the midst of it and far enough along that they're working on it and it was a mistake that it shown that it showed you know yeah that's what it feels like yeah and you know i, I again it makes sense that you know they want apple music everywhere you listen to music uh, they're writing iTunes for Tizen, John. This is their store <laughs> service story. So that brings me to the upcoming rumored event a month from now. Uh, supposedly, this leaked in advance. And, of course, media partners are the leakiest, yeah. <laughs> the leakiest yeah. companies. <laughs> like, why in, how in the world did Apple's supposed Monday, March 25th event at the Steve Jobs Theater, how did it leak? so far in advance well it's because they're talking if it's true they are talking to uh magazines and newspapers about a subscription apple news service and they are talking to various tv movie type companies about uh i I guess about you know some kind of subscription tv service yeah uh video service including which celebrities would be on stage you know that's not gonna that's the secret that's not gonna stay right uh 
I'm, I'm interested in what you think about it. And, uh, and I, I'm guessing that if this is true, that this would be an event where if there are any products to announce, it might be there's a lot of smoke, enough smoke that there's probably a fire to the fact that there's going to be some kind of ref, you know, refresh to the AirPods lineup um, with the uh, case that charges. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to say wirelessly, but I really inductively mean inductively because yeah. it's not really wireless if it doesn't go over the yeah. air, but, uh, the wireless charging case also a, um, the AirPods might come in black, which yeah. is interesting. And I think would prove very popular, but it's kind of interesting because they went with the, we've got one set of earbuds and they're white and you're going to like it for a long time while they were wired and used, yep. used that for a very, uh, successful ad campaign. They were the, iconic. I, right. Like what the ads made them, you know, emphasize the iconic nature of Apple's white earbuds. You remember those illust, you know, very, yeah, very yeah. colorful ads where the, you know, very colorful, vibrant colors of people dancing, listening to music with these white earbuds and wires coming out. And they didn't even need to show the iPod. Right. And if anyone was wearing white earbuds, it didn't matter if they were Apple or not. You just assumed that they were listening to an iPod. Right. And so, you know, it, it famously uh, today, you know, there's AirPods are very, very popular product. They're, you know, subject of memes, you know, where yep. people think you're, you're rich if you have AirPods. But they're so popular now and they're very, again, iconic, you know, and, and for however much guff that people gave them and thought that they looked goofy when they came out, which I never understood. <laughs> I even wrote about this on yeah. Daring Fireball. I don't understand why people thought AirPods looked weird because they looked exactly like Apple's wireless, wired yep. AirPods without the wires. It is, I understand why people felt a little uh, 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 self-conscious. I did. I felt self-conscious when I first started wearing AirPods. Uh, like those big old Bluetooth headsets, right? Well, <laughs> but not, like, like, not because I thought I looked goofy, but because this is so weird, right? After yeah. years and years of wearing wired ear, ear pods, it felt so weird to put them in and not have anything holding them in place. Like it's, you know, you'd like to think that they designed them not to fall out of your ears, but it sure looks like they would fall out of your ears. It turns out for most people with most ears, they don't, which is amazing. Um, but when you, that's what made me conscious, now, maybe not self-conscious, but it just seemed to me like when I first had AirPods, I felt I, I never, I was thinking about them all the time. Cause I'm like, don't fall out, don't fall out, don't fall out. And then eventually, you know, you get used to it and they become the new normal. But anyway, switching to black or offering black, I guess they're not going to switch, but offering black as an option takes away a little bit of that iconic nature. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are in the age of fashion, especially with wearables. We saw that with the watch, where different casings and different bands. My only, like, because when, when John Pachowski, mutual friend John Pachowski, uh, broke the rumor about the event, he said very specifically that he heard there were not going to be AirPods and there was not going to be an iPad mini. He didn't say there was not going to be the iPad 10.2-inch mm -hmm. uh, refresh for the lower-end one, but... It, it's odd that they would have one, but not the. Uh, like it seems to me that if you're going to show off news, it'd be great to show it off on a new iPad. Right. It just it just seems like a good fit. And if you're going to show off television, it'd be good to show that off on new products yeah. as well. And like the daily was the only event I could think of where Apple actually showed, and that was a very small, very 
specific event. Yeah. But just a services event would be something very different. And they have so much uh, expectational debt around any Apple event. We're used to, like March is where we saw the first MacBook. It's where we, they had the launch for the Apple Watch, the, the launch for the iPhone SE, the 9.7-inch iPad. There's just so many iconic products that have come out in March, never mind going back a few years to like the iPad the iPad itself that I think people will just assume there's going to be a lot of that stuff there and it'll be hard for them to just not do hardware at the show. Yeah. But what that hardware will be, I don't know. I think, you know, a new regular iPad would be interesting and it would be, you know, cause last year's was about a year ago. So that's interesting to think that the entry model iPad is on an annual refresh rate that they're not letting that, sit oh that's just the 350 dollar one we don't you know our heart and soul is only in the ipad pros the expensive ones with the latest and greatest technology it'd be interesting if you know and who knows you know yeah. and do it's we have... time for education i mean this is when you right. want to sell the education ipad right uh airpods would be interesting presumably yeah. i i can't help but think that if they are going to unveil airpods which have a wireless charging case that they yeah. would also finally <laughs> have <laughs> dare i say it the yeah. air power yeah uh, the, I, new, I, the new and functional air power i can't help it you know i just don't see how they talk about wireless even if they charge on a standard chi charger which i don't i'm not yeah. sure that the airpods case will like if it charges wirelessly it might charge wirelessly only with the air power i don't think we have an answer to that uh, well, the rumor is that the uh, this year's iPhone is going to do bilateral inductive charging, which is what the Samsung phone, and I forget, I think the Huawei already do that, where you turn them upside down, and it's terrible. It's terrible for phones. It's like 1% after 15 minutes, it shuts off. But uh, like with the, the Galaxy Buds, they've shown this with something small like AirPods, just putting them on the back of your phone, it's a realistic charging mechanism. And that means it would have to be very similar to what Apple, to what Qi is already doing on the hmm. iPhone. Well, who knows? But I, you know, that might be a product that ships in this yeah. March event. That would be uh, new watch bands because we get those every March. Right, right, right. And I don't want to wait till June. Uh, yeah. uh, my presumption that if there's a March 25th Apple event, the next time we hear from Apple will be the WWDC keynote in early June. Yeah. Um, yeah so I would guess the spring assortment of watch straps will be would be unveiled at this event i don't know if it would get stage like a time press release too i mean yeah that's right because sometimes they're just a press release or you see them on apple.com around the same time right i hope they bring back the nylon straps have i said this to you yeah. before god yeah me too right now. i still can't believe that they let that they that they're all gone I mean, only yeah, thing it's I really keep, odd somebody just wrote to me some reader just wrote to me and was like uh just professing their love for for the nylon watch straps and asking me if I had any insight into where they went. And I said, no, none. And they're my favorite too. Um, and I can only presume that they just weren't selling that well, because if they were selling great, why in the world would they have taken them off the market? But Unless, anyway. I mean, everyone seems to like just so many people just wear the sport band and the sport loop are incredibly popular. So it could just be yeah. that there was no room in between them. Yeah, maybe anymore. But I don't like the sport loop for multiple reasons. I don't like the double, the doubling on the one side and I'm just yeah. not really a Velcro person. But I, people wear them like sweatpants. They're like, yeah. like the sweatpants from watch. Pants. No, I know. I, you know, but I think that's part of even without even touching the world of third party Apple watch straps, which is huge, yeah. you know, just within staying within the Apple branded ones. I, 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 
I, I really do think it's fundamental to the success of the platform that you've got this variety of looks and feels, you know, it's, yeah. it's such an intimate, a watch is such an intimate thing. And, uh, cause it really is touching your skin all the time. Uh, having a strap that you think it both feels good, fits right and looks cool is super, super important. And having a variety is the only way to do that. But <laughs> my, my favorite is the nylon strap. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I wish it comes back too. Yeah. I don't know, but I guess that's coming. Anything else? I don't expect any Mac hardware. Uh, it feels like iMac spec bumps should be in another press release yeah. just at some point. Yeah, if, if they're not going to do anything radical, they should just drop the, yeah. the what is it, Coffee Lake? And the, I forget what the Xeon is on now. Right. But I don't really think, I, I don't see how they can do anything with the display. They're already at 5K. They already have yeah. uh, the high dynamic range, whatever you call it. Uh, you yeah, know, the, the DCI-P3. Right. They already have that, you know, so it's... Uh, if they're not going to change the size, I don't, you know, I don't know what else there yeah. is. You know, it's, it's truly, you know, what I expect the next IMAX to be is a true speed bump where they're just hair. They look exactly the same, but they're faster. Um, I mean, eventually we all want that redesign where it's similar to what they're rumoring for the pro display, where it's like a 6K uh, mini LED panel with face ID buried in it. Right. And then you'll <laughs> everyone will refresh at that point, but it doesn't uh, sound like it's ready yet. Right. Uh, yeah. And I, I think I'm guessing that they'll do the standalone display first, but yeah. And I, you know, I don't think the Mac pro is coming at a March media event no. and even, <laughs> even putting aside the German rumor from last week that, that it might be coming at WWDC, which I think is crazy. Cause I think if it doesn't come at WWDC, we've got to start questioning what the hell is going on with, <laughs> with that. If product. I was Apple, like just given some of the delays, I, I would be like, I know a lot of people would, would love them just to show it off and say it's coming in December like they did with the iMac Pro two right. years ago. But just with the delays, I think they should be conservative in what they tease for the no. next little while. Well, yeah, but it's it, – it, I mean, I guess if they're not going to show it at WWDC, they'll just leak – they have to – if they're not going to show it at WWDC, that would be something they would have to leak to somebody yeah. and get the word out. Because if there's no word – at all about the Mac Pro before the keynote, there's going to be thousands and thousands of developers who are watching yeah. this, like, watching the <laughs> WWDC keynote with, yeah, 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 shut up about that. Give me the Mac Pro. Give me the Mac Pro. Give me the yeah. Mac Pro. And then it's like Tim Cook says, thanks. <laughs> Have a great week <laughs> at WWDC. People are going to be, uh, what? Well, I mean, there's so many problems with the expectations here, too, because when, when Apple said modular, everyone in their own mind interpreted that differently. Some right. people thinking it's a new cheese grater. Some people thinking that it's something you can just plug cards into. It was a rumor, and I'm blanking on where it was, where it's going to be a, almost like a red camera where you'll have a brain right. module like a Mac Mini. Right. And you'll be able to stack other Lego bricks on it. And those are all fundamentally different products. Right. It's it doesn't yeah it's it's one of those words that everybody yeah you're right everybody takes the word modular and they they think modular in the way i want it to be modular yes. um well and i i was saying to this i think it was with glenn on the last episode where there's an awful lot of people who when when a year ago panzerino got the uh here's our update on Mac Pro, yeah. it's not a 2018 thing, uh, but we, you know, and, and gave him the interesting look at the pro musicians and video yeah. editors that Apple's hired full time to work hand in hand with the teams making their pro 
editing software for, uh, you know, Final Cut Pro 10 and uh, uh, Logic. Uh, really, really interesting story of the pros, actual pros, working hand-in-hand -hand with the development team and presumably also helping to inform the design of the pro yep. hardware. Um, but the, the thing that I know a lot of people, I've heard this from people, is that there are a lot of people who, given the... I don't think debacle is too strong a word for the mm -hmm. trash can Mac pro, or at least the mistake that the trash can Mac pro turned out to be. There's an awful lot of people who are like, just make a big tower with lots yeah. of space in it. How hard can it be? You know, there's 10,000 companies doing that for windows and just do that. <laughs> just make yeah. a big tower with lots of space. And I think that when Apple was like, Hey, this is taking us, you know, this is going to take us into 2019. There's a lot of people who are worried about the Mac Pro because they're like, well, if they were just going to make, if they were going to do what I want them to do, which is just make a big tower, they'd be like done. A modern already. cheese grater, yeah, right. They'd be done already, and so therefore they're doing something else, and whatever else else they're doing, it's going to be a, a, a bad. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't think I, I'm just intrigued, honestly. I'm, you know, because I'm probably not in the market for the Mac Pro. Uh, I'd be surprised if I were, but. I'm sure curious what it is they've come up with that isn't just a big tower. <laughs> anyway, yeah. though, I don't think that's a March thing. While we're speculating on the March event, I think it's a WWDC thing. And I also, I don't expect MacBook Pros yet. I don't yeah. think that they would announce them at this event anyway. But Yeah, agreed. And then our poor old 12-inch MacBook uh, is desperately in need of a revision, but I don't... And that has been a March thing, but yeah. would it be again is the question. Right. If it's... I think it shifted to WWDC two years ago. Yeah, and if it's just a speed bump, maybe, but then what do they do? Do they show it? How do you show it? You know, Is it just a press release? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's obviously you... overdue, and it's obviously a product that would sure go great with the much-rumored move to in-house ARM chips, but that's yeah. obviously not just going to drop at the March event. Yeah, yeah. Every, everyone wants that computer with an ARM chip and again Face ID. Like, yeah. it's just, everyone's got their their heart set on that already. Yeah, uh, and then so what? The other thing that German teased was a well, no, it wasn't German. It was uh, Ming Chi Kuo who had the idea of a yeah. 16, sixteen or sixteen and a half inch MacBook Pro uh, with an all new design. Yeah. Which leads me to my last topic, which is uh, this popped into my radar last night on Twitter, where Joanna Stern. Uh, was tweeting with somebody on Twitter, but she, as, as a owner of a weeks old new MacBook Air, is already having trouble with the keyboard with letters getting stuck. And I forget who she was tweeting with. I'll put a link in the show notes. I swear. Um, but then you know, and it just prompted a, a depressingly large number of people to with with third you know the 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 latest revision of these keyboards yeah. with the membrane underneath them, who are saying, yeah, my E key gets stuck or blank gets stuck. Mine's, you know, mine's my space bar. Apple has mine because the space bar was stuck, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I can't help but think as much as I like the new MacBook pro and in my testing, and I didn't have any problem with the keys. Um, uh, but it sure seems like that this, whatever they've done for the third generation has not solved the problem. And at this point, I, I think we're looking at, this is truly unacceptable. 
Yeah, I've had the same. Like I've gone through, I forget how many now, seven of them, and I've had one one key on one of them, the control key, give me problems, but I just popped it off and cleaned it, and it was fine. Uh, and I had a key fail on my 2014 MacBook Pro, and I had to take that in, and they replaced it like they would do with a modern one. Uh, but for me, it's the same thing. Like I love the new keyboard. I like it way better than the old one, but the fact that so many people don't like it, to me, when you have one manufacturer, it's different if you're like Windows and Dell and HP and everybody makes, you know, Lenovo, they all have different computers because you can have your choice. You can, if you don't like one keyboard, buy another manufacturer. It's not a problem. But Apple's the only one who makes macOS laptops, so they can't afford to have anything that's divisive, whether it's mechanically or just tactically divisive. Um, you know, and, and I'll echo everybody who says just put the put the damn uh, iMac keyboard right. into the MacBook and call it a day. I, that was my that's my takeaway, and I've been using it a lot. Like I've really I've settled on my favorite iPad keyboard setup. My favorite iPad keyboard setup is the Apple Magic keyboard yeah in the studio neat canopy folding case which i almost never even fold up i just leave it open and it's just a place to put it and i for my use because i don't do too much writing on the ipad and i like to hold the ipad naked without a heavy case on it so that the apple keyboard cover is sort of ruled out and i i the mag, you know, it's not hard to get it off the magnet, but it's not easy as opposed to just using this canopy where it just doesn't snap in or anything. You just lift it in, lift it out, lift it in, lift yep. it out. And it's a great keyboard. It is an amazing keyboard. Yep. <laughs> it's terrific. It is super, super. It is. I, I'm blown away at how much nicer a keyboard it is than the old Magic keyboard, the one that had like the took double A batteries in a, yeah, a yeah, cylinder yeah. on the side. Like it just, and it's better than both the old MacBook Pro and the new MacBook Pro keyboard. It's really it it and it could be. You know, you can see how it, it this could be a laptop keyboard. Uh, yeah. Oh my God. So they have that. It's even worse that they have this amazing keyboard <laughs> yes. that the company is making. Uh, and they're not using it. It, but at this point, and the thought that occurred to me last night on Twitter, after reading this thread on Twitter and seeing that th- there's enough, nobody ever complained about stuck keys. I'm not saying that nobody's keys got stuck on older yeah. MacBooks. It happens, you know, keyboards break. Yeah, it happened to me. But there's clearly, clearly a problem with this butterfly design that the third generation hasn't solved, where it's way more prevalent than than it should be, and they're just they're just not dependable. And it's a part of the macbook that has to be dependable like nobody is buying a macbook that who doesn't need the keyboard to be reliable it's it's just fundamental to the product and the thought that occurred to me is that this to me is where apple misses steve jobs i think and and again it's dangerous territory going into the it would be different if steve jobs were still yeah um but I'm more comfortable about it lately because I really feel like we've got enough distance from when he when he died that it's no longer as you know like an open wound. Um, but the conventional wisdom seems to be Apple miss is going to miss Steve Jobs or is funda- you know never going to be the same because Steve Jobs was the only person who could who could lead them to create amazing new products. You know that it's this that the you know you don't get things like the iPod and the iPhone and the iPad without Steve Jobs and that's what Apple's all about and I don't think that's true and I feel like uh the watch is proof of that AirPods yep. are proof yep. of that they've had new products that are terrific in in the last few years to me where they're I think they miss Steve Jobs isn't in the creation of great new things. It's in addressing problems that, yeah. that the, among the dozens of ways that he was a terrific 
CEO of Apple. I feel like what he did when things went wrong and his ability to accept it and, and, and embrace it and say, yes, this is terrible. We need to fix it. You know, famously there was a story about, um, mobile me when it launched. Yeah. Yeah. And he held a town hall meeting. I forget how long after it launched, but the gist of it was, you know, there's maybe 150 people could fit in there. There's a hundred people in the Apple town hall. And he said, he's up on stage and he says, let's talk about mobile me. What is mobile me supposed to do? And I don't know, one or two people in the audience would give their you know answer. And somebody gave an answer that was sufficient. You know, like, yes, this is, here's what, yeah. here's a brief description of what mobile me is supposed to be and do. And he goes, well, why the hell doesn't it do that? Yeah. And you know, in the intervening, you know, the, the Apple's got, in my opinion, Apple has gotten its act together on iCloud and yes, I know that, you know, all of a sudden there's a couple hundred people listening to this podcast who are like, well, I've, my contacts still don't sing. I'm not saying it's perfect, but I, it's really a lot different than it was certainly from the mobile me era in terms of reliability. One of the things that like, one of the things I think he doesn't get enough credit for is that he was an incredibly strong auteur. He was very opinionated, yep. but when you look at like, he did not want iTunes on windows, but he trusted his team and let them do it, threatening them if it, if it didn't work. Same with iPad mini, did not want an iPad mini, trusted his team, said it's your fault if you blow it, let them do it. He loved that G4 cube. It was unacceptable. So he canceled that thing. Like it did not last on the market for five years you know, just collecting dust. Uh, mm. he, he killed that thing. Right. And that's the part of it I think is absolutely true. Like you can just imagine him picking up that keyboard and throwing it across the lab right. and saying, why is it still getting stuck? This is unacceptable. Fix this. Not, you know, next year, two years, whatever the roadmap is, fix this today. There's another story. It was Adam Lashinsky, uh, who I think still writes at Fortune, but he had a book out a couple years ago. I, unfortunately, I'll, <laughs> I will get it in the show notes. Uh, but he, one of the stories in his book was um, about a. Apparently, every time I guess there's not that many VPs at Apple, but every time somebody would get promoted yeah. to VP, um, Steve Jobs had a, a spiel that he would give them, and it, it was like the parable of the janitor and the vice president. And this, I'll paraphrase here, but uh, I'll put a link where the passage from his book is, and you can read it. But the gist of it is. Uh, you're getting promoted to a vice president. You meet with Steve Jobs and he says, look, here's what the difference between a janitor and a vice president. Let's say I'm in here, here in my office and I notice my trash hasn't been getting emptied and my wastebasket is now overflowing. And I go to the janitor who's supposed to be emptying my wastebasket bucket every day. And I say, hey, uh, I noticed my trash isn't getting emptied. What's going on? And the janitor might say, well, the locks were changed on your office door and I don't have a key anymore. So I couldn't get in. That's a reasonable explanation. And from the janitor, you know, they, it's a legitimate explanation for why my trash isn't getting, um, emptied and we'll have to figure out something, get the guy a new key or whatever. He goes, when you're a vice president, you no longer get excuses. Yeah. There is no excuse. You need to empty the trash. And if you can't get in, you need to figure it out and fix it. Which in turn reminds me of the story of Scott Forstall and the iPhone team when the one there was at some point during the development. Remember the story where the, during the original development of the iPhone, somebody, some woman on the team, there was an argument, tempers were flaring, and she slammed the door to her office and it broke the lock or the latch and she couldn't get out. <laughs> and <laughs> do you, you ever hear this story? I, I think no. it was in Ken Kashenda's book. Uh, 
Oh, maybe then. Yeah. I yeah. Read the book. And, you know, and they're on a deadline and uh, Forstall, she's locked in there and they've got oh, work yeah, to do. Yeah, yeah. And so Forstall, somebody had a baseball bat and Forstall just took a baseball bat and just bashed her door in <laughs> to get her out. <laughs> Yeah. Right. But they Vice weren't going to wait. It's like, you know what I mean? But it's almost like, it's like yeah. Forstall almost exemplified what Jobs is talking about. And that, you know, they needed her to be, you know, they needed her that night to do work. And she just locked in a room and they're not going to wait for like building services to come. Just take a baseball bat and tell her to stand away from the door and bash the doorknob in. Yeah. Anyway, my thinking on that is that there's some VP who's ultimately responsible for this keyboard and to me, the time for excuses is over. And I, I, again, I, I am not presumptive enough to say call for somebody to be fired. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, uh, I, but I, and I, so I don't take this lightly, but to me, this is to the point where maybe somebody should be fired. Like, I think it's that serious. And where does the buck stop? And my fear is that in the post Steve Jobs, Apple this keyboard, MacBook keyboard thing is it, it, it off on its own. And the people who are deciding how to fix it and what to do going forward are the same people who designed it in the, and approved it in the first place. Well, I mean, they've, they have fired people in the recent past for stuff like, like not for the keyboard, but for issues that involve products being late and not being delivered on time hmm. or problems with the products. Like some of the people who were in charge of those two years ago, three years ago, were no longer there. Uh, they're just, it's just not very public. So I'm, it, this is just particularly bewildering because it's been so, like the sentiment around it is so toxic. You just have all these, like people like Joanna, people like Casey Neistat, people who get a ton of attention, um, Casey Johnston mm -hmm. railing on it all the time and nothing. You know, and they did that. You know, maybe you can see. Oh, we're going to fix it with a membrane, but it just it's it's it doesn't get fixed, and that is not really like to your point. That's not really how things got done. It's it's doing reputational harm to yes. the MacBook brand, and it is it, it's truly this, in my opinion, the second most important brand at the company behind the phone. I, I mean, you can argue it would be a fine argument to make to say iPad is more important than MacBook, but it's at least close. But in terms of, yeah. you know, units, they sell a lot more iPads. But in terms of revenue, they sell more MacBooks. Uh, it's like they didn't leave that antenna busted for three years on the iPhone 4. That was fixed by the time it was on Verizon. Right. It was, yeah, it didn't even take a year. Uh, yeah. It was already fixed in the... In or the iPhone 6, like, you know, they, they fixed the, the structural integrity of that by iPhone 6S, you right. know, all these things right. fixed. Uh, it, 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 I, I feel like that revision last summer with the, okay, here's our third generation. We've added a membrane. Officially, they're only saying that the membrane makes it quieter. <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming that was for legal reasons. Right. I, well, I think for many reasons, but I think legal yeah. among them. Um, but unofficially was, you know, also intended to prevent, what do you call it, egress, you know, prevent yeah. particles from getting in there and causing problems, causing keys to get stuck or malfunction. Or I guess a lot of people are having a problem with the space bar where it's not, it doesn't get stuck, but they hit the space bar and you get two spaces instead of one. Yeah. Um, which I guess isn't as bad a problem, but it's, again, it's awful. You, you just expect, you know, I've been using, I've got a MacBook Pro here that it's a 2014 that I've used thousands of thousands of times since 2014 and i to the best of my knowledge i've never once hit the space bar and had two spaces appear 
So I don't, I, yeah. I, seriously, how many times have I used the space? Have I typed a space on this MacBook Pro? Uh, you know, here's it's like one of those job interview puzzles. Like, hmm, what's a good estimate? Uh, typical. If I write <laughs> what, typical, if I write a couple thousand words a day, every word is separated by a space, right? So, thousands of words, thousands of days right easily millions right i i it sounds ridiculous do you think what well, you've typed millions of spaces but if i type thousands of words a day over several thousand days you know and this has been five almost four and a half years i don't think it's ridiculous to think i've typed a, mil, a million or two spaces with this keyboard and i've to my knowledge i can't recall one time not even one in a million where I've gotten two spaces. That's how – and that's not crazy. That's not like, oh, only Apple made keyboards where you hit the space and you all – you know, a million times in a row and get one space. I mean that's, you know, pretty common on quality laptops from any brand. I, I really think that this is causing irreparable – not irreparable, but serious reputational harm to the MacBook brand that will outlast the keyboards. Like even they're at the point now where they can fix it and it's still – going to be in people's minds that MacBooks aren't don't have reliable keyboards. Yeah, they'll wonder every time they buy one whether it's going to be reliable or not, which is the last thing you want them wondering. Right. And on the other side of the f- same surface, the trackpads are so amazingly good. Like yes. it's, you know, the the new trackpad that doesn't use the diving board mechanism, you know, where it's all virtual clicking and it feels like real clicking and it's equally clickable at the top and the bottom and they're made it nice and big. Uh, it, you know, that's right in the MacBook brand, you know, best trackpads in the industry. That's part of the MacBook brand. Best keyboards in the industry should be too. And instead it's arguably the worst keyboards in the industry. I, I, something's yeah, got to happen. It's hard to believe the two and the two things came from the same engineering division. And I can't help but think. I mean, it's almost like Apple's in a bad spot where, like, the MacBook Airs just came out, you know, and they're not, yeah. you know, it, they can either stick with this keyboard design and have all the prop, you know, suffer the continuing degradation of the brand and the confidence people have in these products. Or they can fix it with a new keyboard design, which means they're upgrading, updating the hardware sooner than they had expected to, you know, and at a cost to the company, you know, that they expect to get X number of years out of a design. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it's it, it seems like we'll see with this. The, so the 16-inch MacBook Pro is, is supposed to be um, sort of like a 17-inch screen put into a 15-inch yeah. chassis, sort of like what we had with the iPhone and the iPad Pro and a complete redesign. So this, it, it's it's kind of weird we didn't see this with the MacBook Air, but that looks like it's using the exact same process as the previous ones. Mm. This, If this is a new design and they stick with the same keyboard, it, it's going to be flabbergasting. What do you think? Do you, so do you think if it's true that they're coming out with a 16 or whatever inch MacBook Pro, do you think it's like effectively the 15 inch footprint, but with more of an edge to edge display, not a, yeah, exactly not that. a return of the lunch tray, <laughs> 17 inch the, footprint. The, the destroyer, right. <laughs> the battleship, which again, yeah, no, I think- my wife was a huge fan, fan of, she, she read this rumor. I didn't even tell her cause I didn't want to get her hopes up. And somehow she found it on her own. I think friend of the show, Paul Cafasis told her in a text message and now she's all hepped up about it. Uh, but I told her, I was like, I don't think it's going to be that. I mean, you know, you can get the 15 inch MacBook and it'll have a bigger display, but I don't think you're getting the, the big iMac. <laughs> 
17 inch iMac in a laptop that we had before. I used to joke like, "Where's my Where's my iMac uh, My iMac Book Pro?" Um, but really, there's so many technologies that Apple hasn't brought down to the MacBook line, including the new design language, which is the iPhone 10 yeah. and the, the this year's sorry last year's iPad Pro. That it's sort of really easy to see where those cues would make sense on a MacBook Pro. Yeah. And we look at like the it's not it's the LG Gram like the LG Gram is a 17 inch laptop that looks like it's something from the future, and you know that's where the industry is moving. Yeah. I don't know. And then uh, Jackie Cheng, who's now working, uh, she used to be at Ars Technica, then she was at Wirecutter, and now yeah. she's at, uh, I forget which radio station. She's at a classical radio station in New York as their editorial director. Sorry, Jackie, I don't remember the radio station. But uh, she mentioned that at her new job, they got her a new 13-inch MacBook Air that she's, you know, work provided, so she's using it. But, like, it for her, it's replacing, like, a 2013 MacBook Air that she owned and that the only real thing she notices that's better is the retina display which is obvious and it's a big you know it's a big thing to put an asterisk next to i mean it's obviously a nicer display but like i tweeted to her i was like and conversely like in 2013 when you got a macbook air if you were replacing a then five-year-old 2008 macbook of some sort you're like amazed in a lot of ways (laughs) Like there's like wow this is so much faster and it's so much thinner and it's so much lighter and the display's better and the trackpad's better you know and the list goes on and on I, I there's a certain lack of wow in a new MacBook today compared to five years ago that and you, like that MacBook Air like not the first one uh, the second one it redefined Mac it redefined all laptops for half a decade like they yeah. became the model for the ultrabooks and we've just no one else has done that yet it's not just an Apple thing like there there are very advanced laptops that are very nice there are gaming laptops that have like all sorts of neon keys but there's nothing that's been industry transformative yeah. I think that's again similar to like because people like to make things about Apple but when you look at the phone market the same things are true for Apple that are for Samsung and Huawei and and everybody we've just reached a point. Where where this stuff has been honed. It's like the old Excel thing. Excel looks like Lotus because that's what the job it has to do. And we've reached that point where we've got, we've chiseled away almost everything unnecessary. And you can play around with it. You, know, you can give it fancy casings and light-ups and things like that. But they're just so good at doing that job. Unless someone has a really new way, like the, the, the MacBook Air was a really new way of making these computers. Unibody was a huge shift. Yep. It's hard to see what that next huge leap forward is unless it is something like the, the iPad Pro or the Surface or you know, these, these, uh, transformables. Yeah. I don't know. So anyway, bottom line, I don't expect MacBooks at March, but maybe, I don't know, maybe probably not pros, but maybe an updated 12 inch, but nothing I, I don't expect radical, but, and the keyboard saga will go on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, anything else you wanted to talk about before we cut off for the week? No, I mean, I think we hit all the, yeah. All the big nails on there. Let heads. me ask you this. I'm, I'm so curious yeah. about you and, and your continued drive into being a YouTuber. And, and like I said, <laughs> I'm really enjoying I, I I think, you know, it's just that you want to get better at something, do it. Like, yes. you've always been good at the videos. But since you've, like, doubled down on Vector and the, the your YouTube channel, when did you, when did that start? Was that, like, a year ago? Almost literally a year ago. Yeah. Like the year, it was the HomePod review was my first video. Hmm. I, it, it's, you've gotten so much better, you know, like oh, your recent you. videos are, I mean, I've been into them and I've enjoyed, I enjoyed your HomePod review. You know, it's not like you were bad and now you're good, but you've, you've clearly gotten a style down to the show. Uh, and I'm just curious how long, I, 
how much time that that consumes of your week? Almost all, all my time right now because I'm like I have this weird affliction where like when I blogged I had to blog continuously and when I made podcasts I wanted to do it daily and now I'm trying to do YouTube videos daily and they take so much more time than a podcast uh, because of a lot of the editing and B-roll and you have to sh- be visual and audio and all these things but it feels like it's the only way to get good to me like I'm not I'm not good at being good otherwise I just I learn everything by doing it. Um, so it takes almost, I wake up and I, I film a video and I spend most of the rest of the day editing it and then I post it the next morning or in the evening if, if it's more urgent. And, uh, what's your current setup? Like, how are you reading the script? Like, do you have like a teleprompter type thing? Like, do you use an iPad? Uh, I mean... I didn't initially and then people told me I spoke way too quickly and so I got, uh... Joe Chaplinski, uh, you know, f- friend of the show, he does the um, he does podcasts. He's in Whiskus's band. Really amazing. They do a teleprompter plus plus app. And I set it like at a speed that was uncomfortably slow for me so that I would force myself to slow down. Uh, and it's working. And I have a combination of, of things in there and notes and bullet points that I want to make sure I, I hit. And what's that? An iPad app? Yeah, it's an iPad app, and you can run it off your iPhone. So I can it, I, sometimes, I often I have a friend with me helping me do all do everything. But I can put it next to my next next to me on when I'm reading, and then just uh, go up and down on the iPhone, and that'll adjust the iPad app. And what's the, what camera are you using? I'm using the Panasonic GH5, um, just because it was well regarded. I know a lot of people like the Sony's, but I like the fact that I can turn it around and see myself in the in the viewfinder. Hmm. Uh, well, I'm really enjoying it, and I'm not surprised oh, in you. the least <laughs> find out that it's taking you all day every day to do it because it really does show. Uh, oh, thank you. That is the thing. That's one of the other things I've heard is that in the growth of this, and I hate the word influencer, this whole influencer thing, but yeah. there's obviously a lot of people who, you know, who, who are, uh, and I, I, as an independent content producer myself, I, I the YouTube thing is... Uh, uh, far field from what I've done or uh, a field, maybe not far afield, yeah. but I'm, I'm impressed by the success people are having. And I'm not surprised because, uh, you know, TV was so popular, you know, in the last yeah. millennium or, or century, it's no surprise that these, this, you know, making these little eight minute ish things in this century has proven to be a, a million, million viewer popular for a lot of people. Um, but I keep reading that it, it, it is super, super consuming because the way, you know, the, the algorithm works, the algorithms work at YouTube. It's, you can get, getting popular is great, but to stay popular, you really need to keep pumping out the videos and you can't, you know, there's the, the quality demands don't go down in terms of, you know, tightness of editing and camera work, et cetera, et cetera. I mean that's true to that's true to some extent. Well, the interesting thing for me is like if you look at like uh, like Shane Dawson, who's hugely popular, or CGP Gray, friend, you know, mutual friend. They don't release a lot of videos, but when they do, they're like absolute events, um, and and they get just un, un, ungodly amounts of attention. For me, it's just that I. I, I'm still not good enough at filming that I can capture the story in the camera. So I, I do a lot of work in the edit, which means I can't hand it off to anybody else to do for me. And I'm not sure I would anyway. Like the like I've had podcasts edited for a long time. Jim Metzendorf does a great job uh, with that for me. But with the video, I, I'm still telling the story in the edit, and that's what takes so long for me. I enjoy. I also enjoy, and I think you're getting clever at it. Is the um, your integration of the sponsor reads 
into the script oh, <laughs> where, and, and it's almost, it's like you're, I'm a, I don't think you'll take it the wrong way. You're, you're, you're sort of cornball. You like a pun, you know, you, yeah. you do like a pun. And so yes. sometimes the way you work it in, it's supposed to be a little corny in the way that you work it in, but it's not abrupt. Like the Skillshare one in the, uh, in the most recent one that I watched, it was just super funny. I thought, and, oh, I and very that. clever. And, you know, uh, it, 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 in a world where people are, you know, blocking, you know, using software to block ads, like to me, and it, you know, it's near and dear to my heart as the person doing a podcast with these sponsorship things is how do you make ads that not only people don't want to block, but that they actually want to listen to. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, well, I mean, you were also a huge inspiration for that because like, I don't, I don't turn on Google analytics. I don't turn on Google uh, it's not even set up on the account. There's no overlay ads. There's no pre-roll, mid-roll, post-roll. You're never getting interrupted with that. And I use the strict sponsorship model. And I want it to not feel... I, I just want it, I want it to be as an enjoyable experience as possible. And so I try to like be tongue-in-cheek yeah. with it. And then I try to keep it as short as possible because videos are nowhere nearly as long as podcasts. Right. And I don't want to spend a lot of your time on on, on the sponsor. Right. So I try to get in and out and make it relevant to the video. No, it is. The podcasts are the anti... Or not podcasts. YouTube videos are the anti-podcast where here yeah. we are approaching hour three or do we just cross hour three? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, and the videos are, you know... It, you know, sorry that the video is seven minutes long. I didn't have enough time to make it six minutes. You know, it's like that yeah. the Mark Twain line about, you know, writing a, a long letter. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It just takes more work to make the point in six minutes, but it's even better if you do. Um, and that includes it. Yeah, I told you this before. I, it's one of my favorite stories in recent years in terms of the, the way that little kids' minds think is that, and it stuck with me, is that somebody on Twitter was blown away. Somebody like our age, you know, had a little girl and her and her friends all call advertisements skip ads yeah <laughs> and that's all ads whether they actually are like youtube ads with a skip ad button they just call them skip ads because <laughs> that's what they that's what the label says skip ad and yeah, it really no, you know that's but it also clearly shows their mentality of them that these <laughs> these are things you skip uh which is you know not conducive to continuing to have them Absolutely. Anyway, keep up the good work. I really, I, Thank you it's so great. Much. And it's, you know, it's been a very, you know, and I, I, I can only assume you're going strong. It's not like, you know, you're in it for a year, but it's, you're in it, you're more invested in it than ever. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I might, I might end up being totally terrible at it. We'll see. But so far I'm just going to keep working at it. Yeah. Well, it shows and I, I really enjoy it. Thank uh, you. Everybody else, you can read the rest of Renee's work, of course, at imore.com and he's at Renee Ritchie on Twitter. And then uh, the YouTube channel is Vector. You can just probably just go to YouTube and search for it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my thanks to our sponsors this week. Let's see if I can do it off the top of my head. We have uh, Squarespace, where you can go to build a website. Fracture. Fracture, of course, where you can go to print your pictures. And then our new sponsor, first-time sponsor of the show, Marine Layer, where you can go to get super, super soft T-shirts and sweatshirts made out of trees. My thanks to them. Thanks, Renee.